450 or something and then shoot back up again. It kind of goes up and down and up and down in a general up, upward trend. Well, those are just the subscribers, too. Those aren't the people that might listen to it but don't subscribe. Like, right. I don't subscribe, so yeah. I just, just listen people. to it anyway. Yeah, there's, just people, there's people that just download it straight off the page or listen to it straight off the page. That's fine. The, the, what it, the goal was to make it easy for anybody, no matter what their level of expertise, to be able to listen to the show. All the way from, I want to download it all the time automatically to, oh, this is interesting. Why don't I just hit play? You have succeeded, my friend. Yeah. I just, you have to make it as easy as possible for people. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Yes. I was trying to explain self-publishing to Don Ledger today over coffee. Um, and I said, Don, they've made it idiot-proof. Even my mom could – not that my mom's an idiot, but not her <laughs> you know, computers and all that stuff. And even she could figure it out. So he was like, oh, well, I'll do it myself. Well, that's where the marketing thing comes in, Don. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's different. Good luck. So, Hokey-dokey. Uh, full disclosure, I haven't read the book since I wrote the introduction. So yeah. I, I have basically forgotten what happens in the book except for that – you uh, talk about going to Europe. You talk about um, uh, Henry Aline. Aline. I can't remember how to pronounce. There's it. five. Everybody pronounces it differently. I, I pronounce it Henry Allen. Okay, Allen. That's 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 actually a very sophisticated and streamlined way to pronounce it. It's um, how it's probably pronounced in his time. So okay. yeah. Mr. Allen. Mr. Allen. Henry uh, Allen. And. Uh, the through line of a lot of the stuff that you and I and Mac and Nick have talked about for, for the most of the time we've known each other and trying to figure out what the, what we think about the paranormal. And we, through some group think mind meld, we all kind of came sort of to the same conclusion. Uh, at least, uh, uh, what's the word? The, the working model right now is about the same for all of us, including Mac, wherever he might be. Yeah, it was. It's weird. I'm going through the first year or two of his blog because I'm putting the um, I'm putting I'm going to put his blog out in book form in volumes because it's just there's so much there. Um, one book will not do it justice. And I you sort of I realized that just looking at it, there's stuff from 2003 and four that I never read where he's talking about the same things we're talking about um, back then. I, but I wasn't aware of that because I didn't read it back then. So it's kind of, yeah, it's a little bit of, ouch, synchronicity or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, yeah, well, we can talk about whatever you want to. And at the end, I'll just say, buy my book. And then yeah, we're good to go. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. 
Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? Since I do everything backwards on the show, it's Paul Kimball, who's been on the show before. People know who Paul is. Um, love him, hate him, or somewhere in between, it's Paul Kimball. Filmmaker, now author, and publisher, actually. I guess you started publishing with the publication of this book, uh, which is a, using the phrase of your blog, The Other Side of Truth. What does The Other Side of Truth mean? Depends on who you ask, but an awful lot of people will tell you it means lies. It means horrible lies by that Paul Kimball guy or whoever. <laughs> the, the truth is, when I started the blog back in, I think it was 2005, I just thought it was a really catchy, you know, it's the typical entertainment industry guy, write a title and then figure out what you're going to fill the script or the book or whatever with after you've got a good title. So I just thought the other side of truth. That's a cool title. You know why it's a cool, cool title? Because everybody will always ask me, what does it mean? The problem is, I don't really know what it means. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's sort of this kind of just a cool catchphrase that I, I kind of thought of. In the years since, I've tried to figure out what it actually means. And I suppose I stumbled into it um, without even really knowing it. This idea that we're given, at least this is what it means to me. There, is, there are truths in our world. We're told that this is true, that is true, this happened, this didn't happen, that couldn't have happened, that must have happened. And so there's this narrative of our society, of our history, of our, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, that is the truth. And I've always believed, and it comes from my training, not training, I shouldn't say training, my education when I was a, a history student, that my professor's most of them inculcated in me this sense that, well, here's the, here's the story that's been told up until now. And, you know, take World War II, for instance. There's been so much written on World War II that if you just accept what's been written as true, and meant much of it is, but if you simply accept it as gospel without trying to add new things to it, then there'd be no point of ever writing another book about World War II or Hitler or Stalin or whatever. But there's always new information that you can find, and every... Every time you find new information, it adds to the truth, whatever that truth is. But even then, you've, mm-hmm. got, one, you've got one version. Yeah. So then what, what's the other side? Because there's always another side of truth. So we have our own truth about, and I was looking at a video the other night about um, the, uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And so, well, you want to talk about another side of truth. Anything to do with the Middle East is the other side of truth. Because if you were to talk to... Your typical Israeli, although you know you sort of hate to pigeonhole everybody, but yeah. they they would say, "Well, here's our truth. Even if we're you know we believe in um, a separate Palestinian state and all of this, there are basic truths that most Israelis hold, which is Israel should continue to exist as a as a sovereign nation." Well, okay, then I'm going to wander over to the Gaza Strip and talk to your average Palestinian. Their truth would be somewhat different, even if they don't think that you should kill all the Jews. 
um, and most of them don't, they would say, we're not sure that Israel should continue to exist as a sovereign nation because they stole this land from us and we've been living here. And so you realize, well, everybody has a different truth. So what what is the truth? Even science. You look at science and you would say, well, okay, something that was true a hundred years ago is not true now. There would be scientists 150 years ago that would have said, well, and there were, that you can't get, you can't, spaceflight is impossible. Well, okay, now we know that it is possible because we've done it. And, you know, you could trot out example after example after example. That's the wonderful thing about science. They, science epitomizes the other side of truth, or at least the non-corporatized, industrialized science that we used to have epitomized the other side of truth because they were always they always understood that the truth was a bit of a moving target. It was always evolving. So, yeah, that's kind of in a very roundabout, long-winded way. Sorry about that. Uh, that's what the other side of truth means to me, that, you know, don't accept things just as they're written. Look for different angles. Look for different ways of looking at things. And uh, and that you know that's something that I've start that I've done more and more as I've gotten older. I I look more and more because I when I was younger I would have just as you know when you read my book you, there's parts of it that relate to my own personal journey as we say in the entertainment industry. Yes. And I, I make no bones about it. I was an arrogant um, sob when I was uh, younger, especially when I was in college. I mean, I wasn't evil. I was a nice, nice enough fellow to hang out with. But there was an underlying—at least I think I was—but there was an underlying core of arrogance there, which isn't completely gone. But I think part of the other side of truth is, at least as it relates to me in person, is realizing that we don't have all the answers. There is more than just one truth, and that slowly bleeds the arrogance and the hubris out of you. And when that ha happens. You, you know, it gets back to that old catchphrase, which my dad tried to drill in me when I was younger, which is the first path on the road to knowledge is admitting that you don't know everything. In fact, you know very little. I used to think I knew everything. And then, you know, 25 years later and a whole bunch of different things happening to me, some good, some bad, um, you realize I know very little. And so the other side of truth relates to me in my own personal journey, but I think it relates to everybody in their personal journey of just trying to to come to grips with who we are and uh, and understanding that what we might have thought 20 years ago or 10 years ago as being it is not necessarily it anymore. Mm -hmm. If that if that makes any sense, I don't know. I'm I'm afraid that it makes 100% sense. And it's in fact um well, well, everything you were saying it brought a lot. The first thing I thought of was, yeah, well, ex excluded middle is almost the same thing. I mean, in general, as as saying other side of truth. And the the second thing I thought was, well, since I've known Paul, he has your your way of dealing with what is it with with, with the question of these questions you deal with in the book actually, the philosophical paranormal questions are different than when I first met you. You changed markedly since then, at least to me. When did we meet? Two thousand three. I think it was four, five. I think it, I think it was two thousand five at. One of the um, Laughlin conferences, yeah. the uh, what do they used to call them, the International UFO Symposium or whatever it was. Yeah, UFO Congress. I did, are they yes, still that's doing it. Those? They are, but not in Laughlin. They moved them to south of Phoenix somewhere, yeah, I think. Because the I think the Open Minds people own it, and that's where they're located. Yes, I, I was also thinking. Oh, it's because Laughlin isn't hot enough, so we have to move to southern Arizona. <laughs> 
you know, more cactus. Yes. Well, I don't know. I like Laughlin. It, it, it was like Vegas without all the without all the junk. In fact, it had almost too little junk, but I like that. There oh, I love I love Laughlin. It's one of the few places in northern, you know, you can tour northern Arizona, southern Nevada, and um, part, you know, Utah maybe, but certainly California, southwestern California, southeastern, sorry, California. Yeah. And you can find a really pretty good hotel room for 30 bucks a night because it's a casino town. So you're... You're 25 minutes from Kingman. You're an hour and a half, well, maybe two hours from the Grand Canyon or three hours. But still, you're, it's a day trip to all of these places. Yeah. And Laughlin's a great place to get a night. You can come back, have a nice hotel, get a nice meal, and uh, play some casino games or something. And then go out the next day to the Mojave or to the Grand Canyon. So, yeah, no, I love Laughlin. Laughlin's awesome. See, when we're at home, when I'm at home here, I don't get sirens. I get airplanes. You could probably hear that going by, at least people, because I'm right under the flight path for uh, Santa Monica Airport. In fact, a plane crashed in our neighborhood about eight or nine years ago. Are you sure that's a plane you're hearing over your head, or could it be some sort of UAV drone monitoring you from the CIA? Uh, they don't need to do that with a drone. They can just listen to our, in our, in our conversation. I know they don't need to, but maybe they're just sitting around going, you know, I know we don't need to, but let's do it anyway, because it'll really freak them out. I'm sorry, but there's so many planes going over here, I wouldn't even know. Yeah, same here. <laughs> I, we're, we're on an airport flight path, flight path too, so, yeah. So I, I never hear them when I'm talking. You must have really well-insulated uh, apartment there. Yes, yes, lots of paper lying on the floor that sort of and pasted on the wall that insulates it. So. <laughs> yeah, that's why I moved to the bedroom in here. This, this has nothing whatsoever to do with your book. Oh. No. Well, and yet maybe it does. Uh, I, have, I have no idea. You went that's to some... Good, oh, go ahead. That's just going to be my answer for every question. This has nothing to do with your book, does it? Maybe or maybe not. It could. You'll have to buy the book to find out. think about it for a minute. <laughs> Planes flying over the house. How does it relate to the other side of truth? That doesn't really. Anyway, next question. <laughs> well, like I said, there was my, my full disclosure at the beginning here was I, I have read the book in its entirety, but I haven't looked at it in like, what, a month? Because that's when I turned in my uh, forward to you, which is also full disclosure. Because Well, it doesn't have to be because people see the cover of the book in very tiny letters. It says my name is I wrote the forward. It's very <laughs> tiny letters. I increased the font size after your first complaint on Facebook. So. <laughs> It wasn't even passive aggressive. I, I I was doing it as a tease. I actually don't really care that much at all. Well, no, um, I know. Which is why my response was in a tease. I think I called you a whining weasel or something, yes, and yeah. then said, "Yeah, yeah." And by the way, I'm going to increase the font size. Fair enough. It was it was actually kind of small. It was too small. So that was good feedback. It was just the way you phrased it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd rather be a whining weasel than a pompous prig, right, Paul? Oh, I like that. Yeah, good good or, name for a band. Yeah, or um, Bitching Badger. Ooh, Bitching Badger. We were talking about badgers or, yeah, badgers earlier. Speaking of which, by way of synchronicity, which is one of the things I discuss in the book, yes. uh, Whining Weasel, the first band, the first gig my band, my first band ever played, we opened for two other bands, one of which was called Weasel Faced Judge. <laughs> uh, which I always thought was hilarious because my dad was for 25 years a criminal court judge 
And so I always weasel face judge. I kind of thought, well, no, my dad's actually quite a handsome fellow. Um, it doesn't look like a weasel at all. But the first band I ever opened for was weasel. I still have the poster somewhere. And every now and then I trot it out and show my dad and he just goes, rrr, rrr. <laughs> yeah, sort of wanders off. But now that we're mentioning weasels for no reason whatsoever, it just struck me. Oh, weasel face judge. So that might, that, well, that's not an example of synchronicity because no. from inside us, I was kind of, uh, I don't know what the word is. I was mystified when you got synchronicity, synchronicity fever when you were here, when you were visiting last time, I was like, why is Paul suddenly noticing all these, these, uh, coincidences and synchronicities appearing around him? Whereas when I first knew him and for most of the time I've known him, he's never said a word about it. Well, it's, I think, you know, to be serious, I think it is one of the things that I talk about in the book is this idea that the paranormal and all of its manifestations, whether it's um, UFOs or ghosts or whatever. And, and I go into different reasons as to as to how the, I try and view them in an artistic or an entertainment industry, if you will, depending on the case um, sort of paradigm. But no matter whether it's looking at ghosts as kind of a, a horror film or looking at UFOs as kind of performance art or whatever, if you're going to see something that is artistic or entertainment in nature, you have to buy a ticket. You can't actually, well, you don't, you don't have to buy a ticket to the Getty Center. I was going to use the Getty Center as, as an example, which is an art gallery that I love in Los Angeles. You have to you pay still, for parking. You have to pay for parking unless you take the bus, which yeah. I did. And then you have to pay for the bus. You still have to get yourself out there. No matter, you actually have to make an effort to go. The Getty Center is not going to walk down to Hollywood, where I am, and when I'm staying with you, and knock on the door and go, hey, Paul, it's the Getty Center out on the road. Come out, and here we are. So I actually have to make an effort, which would be really bad for your neighbors. I was imagining that, and it was making me laugh. It's like, knock, knock. Is there an earthquake? What's going on? Oh, my God, the Getty Center's here. It's It's the Getty Center outside. It's giant legs, you crazy Getty Center, get out of here. Come on, I've already seen Van Gogh. Shoo, shoo you. you know, head up to West Hollywood. They'll like it. So, you know, this idea that you have to buy a ticket. So you could go through your entire life using that metaphor. I think you, a, a lot of people can go through their entire life and probably do go through their entire life and they never buy a ticket. So they never actually, I think it's out there waiting for us that we can all access it in some form or another that whatever... And in the book, I, I offer some potential, you know, sort of answers as to what this, I call it an advanced non-human intelligence, frankly, because I'm tired of listening to people call it the others or, you know, the visitors, which all sounds terribly sort of NBC primetime television show kind of thing, the others. To me, it's an advanced, meaning it's further advanced than we are, non-human, meaning it's probably non-human, although I speculate about maybe it being post-human, and it's obviously intelligent. So what is it doing? It's interacting with us. Why is it interacting with us? And, you know, this kind of is summarizing the book in a nutshell. There's three possible explanations that I can see for that. One is it means to do us harm. I reject that outright for the very simple reason that if it wanted to do us harm, it would do us harm. I mean, it it could have destroyed our civilization without even, and I get into, you know, examples in the past from our own history to show that how an advanced civilization can easily overwhelm Yes. Um, a less advanced civilization. And a perfect example is uh, Cortes and the Conquistadors, 500 Spaniards showing up and defeating an entire empire in Central America. That's and, just and one strangely example. strangely enough, uh, mostly because it was based on their belief system. Right. Um, you know, shock there, and... There's a, there, there's a little key there. There's shock and awe, um, you know, 
in its very early manifestation. So for a lot of reasons, I reject the idea that the advanced non-human intelligence means us harm. So that leaves two alternatives as far as I can see. The first one is, and I reject this one too, because when, I, when you look at the history of all the various, including my own experiences of how maybe I've interacted with the paranormal, it doesn't seem to be benign neglect. It doesn't seem to be something that's just kind of happening and we just happen to, like, we just happen to be standing there. Kind of like an anthill with the ants, to use Michio Kaku's example, um, with the ants sort of walking around the anthill and a human being walks by and, and steps on the anthill. Or you can feel it shake or you see this, the ants would look up and go, oh, what's that giant creature? But the giant creature isn't really even thinking about the ants. It just happens to be going by, but it has an impact on the ants. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't, I don't think that's the case because when you look at the paranormal, the history of the paranormal and its interaction with humans, I think you can see that it's more than that, that there is a purpose to it. So I've rejected the purpose, which is to do us harm, which means there's really, using process of elimination for me, only one other possible explanation, which is that it's intending to interact with us for a purpose that is not to mean us harm, that is to actually help us. And this all sounds very space brothery, um, you know, George Adamski and all the guys in the desert. But whereas they would say that it shows up and actually gives them plans to the spaceship or messages or all the very... Wow, Paul's really cutting out on the Skype. And I've got a uh, yellow indicate. Oh, it's green again. Paul, are you there? Yep. Oh, you know what? For the for, for all my all my uh, boasting at the beginning of the show here about Skype being fine here, it cut out now for probably about ten seconds while you were talking. Oh, and you said a- there you were just in the middle of a, you know instead of Adamski and all those people saying that they were getting plans of the spaceships and that they were coming here to actually tell us to not fight with each other, and then it got cut off. Right. Well, instead of all that, where the space aliens would literally um, come up to a guy and say, here, here, I've written it down for you so you don't forget, nuclear weapons bad. <laughs> you know, we knew um, anyway. Yes. Um, I look at it and say it really does resemble two things. One, an art form. And I think when you look at art in all its various manifest- manifestations, music, film, television, uh, painting, dance, theater, when an artist is trying to deliver a message, the most effective way, there's two ways to do it. One, you can hit, I'll use songwriting as an example, because that's what I used to do. You can either literally write in the song, war is bad, war is bad, war is bad, and just play that over and over again. I guess that has a certain sort of effect on people. But frankly, I think most people are a little more intelligent than that. So you would get people like, Dylan or any of the Beats or any of the great songwriters of the 60s, and they would be a little more subtle. And so the message would often be buried in um, a song or lyrics to a song that perhaps weren't quite, as we say in the film industry, on the nose. Because in in the film industry, to use another example, scripts will be routinely rejected if they are too clear cut. If you literally, like, here's the bad guy. That guy's the bad guy. That guy's the good guy. You should cheer for him, but not for him. Well, that's pro wrestling. But, you know, and, and scripts are rejected. They'll say it's too on the nose. You yeah. can look at a great painting by somebody like Dolly or Picasso or, you know, I could, Jackson Pollock. I could rattle off names. And you go, five of us could stand there and look at it and go, each one of us is taking something different from it. So it's it's not on the nose. So I think that's what the paranormal is. I think it's an art 
they're using art to deliver art forms, what we would call art forms, to deliver a message to us. I think the message is one that is beneficial to us, and it is, in essence, the same kind of message that parents deliver to the young children. Think, grow up, advance, realize that there's something more than, out there than just this truth, if you will, or this world that you've been told is real and maybe is all that there is. But we can't force you to come to that conclusion. We can't, to use the parental uh, metaphor, we can't do the homework for you. Well, we can, but what would be the point? You wouldn't learn anything. What we can do is we can help you. Um, we can make sure that we can drive you to school. We can drive you home. We can make sure that you're given the tools of learning um, in whatever way to come to your understanding yourself. But we're not going to do the work for you because then there'd be no point. You wouldn't actually learn. And so I think that's what they're trying to do. And I've said that, and I say it much better, I think, in the book, much more eloquently in the book. God, I hope so. Um, but that's what the book is ultimately getting at. And that's why the subtitle is The Paranormal, The Art of the Imagination, and The Human Condition. Because I, I really think that in the end, this all relates to us and where we've been, where we are, and most importantly, where we're going. And I think that whatever the advanced non-human intelligence is, it's clearly demonstrated, at least to me, that it has an interest in where we're going. And it's not an interest in that it's afraid of us or that it fears that we're going to do it harm, but that kind of interest that a parent has in um, their children. Which is not to say that the advanced non-human intelligence is our parent, but it is that sort of relationship. Or, you know, a big brother to a, a younger sister or um, that kind of thing. So it doesn't have to be parent-child. So that's, that's really what the book is about. And, and along the way, it talks about ghosts and it talks about UFOs uh, a bit and reincarnation and synchronicity and how all of these things are attempts by this advanced non-human intelligence to remind us that there's something, as the great pop poet Brian Ferry would have said, <laughs> more than this. Um, and so, yeah, that's really what the book is getting at. Oh, Okay. Yeah, and it, um, I was thinking along the same lines a few years ago, but I didn't really take it as far. Um, just saying that, that UFOs were some sort, of, and to use a you know fake phrase or whatever, a quick phrase, some sort of cosmic art project. Yeah, and that's the only way that really I'd come to the conclusion. You could think about the way it was the, the metaphor you could use for any communication that might be going on, because it doesn't make any. Uh, if you look at it on the face of it, a lot of these things don't make any literal sense at all. Just like you said about the paintings, they don't make any literal sense. But um, more, more of it, it's the more sense it seems to make is as a reaction. Like ninety percent of what goes on is your reaction to it, and that I don't know what's what's in the rest of that ten percent. It might be that that uh, big brother um, parent kind of thing you're talking about. Um, right. Absolutely. And, and the ghost thing is a perfect example of that to sort of hone in on that. Yeah. I, and with each chapter, I kind of try and meld the world of art or entertainment and kind of show a particular example from that as to how it relates maybe to the paranormal. <clears throat> Excuse me. You can edit that part out. The I'm leaving it in. No, no, that's terrible. So with ghosts, I use the example of horror films. I actually use a quote from David Cronenberg at the top of the chapter, but then I talk in two ways. One about my own experience as a young kid, we would travel to Prince Edward Island, which is the small 
province, island province, um, across the uh, Northumberland Strait from Nova Scotia, which when I was Anne of Green Gables, most of your listeners would be familiar with Anne of Green Gables. Well, that's where she comes from Prince Edward, or that character came from Prince Edward Island. So it's this small island with about 120,000 people. And when I was younger in the 70s, it had a lot of theme parks, very low rent, very low budget, charming, really, theme parks, one of which actually, Rainbow Valley, um, the gift shop was in the form of a UFO, which was really kind of cool as a young kid. So uh, when people ask me where my interest from UFOs or in UFOs come from, I'm always tempted to say Stan Friedman. But actually looking back on it, it was probably going to Rainbow Valley and hanging out in the gift shop that was shaped like a UFO. So, But they, they had one in particular that was a really low budget. It wasn't even a, it's called a theme. I think they had mini golf and maybe a campground. But they had a house of horrors. And by house of horrors, I mean a mobile trailer of horrors. Because they had kind of, you know, looking back on it, it's laughable. But when you're a seven or eight-year-old kid, it, they had spooky music coming out, the kind that my dad still plays on Halloween from a record player out the window to scare the kids coming up to the house. You know, just sounds and creepy sounds and stuff like that and maniacal laughter and everything. And uh, they kind of, as I recall it, painted it black and they had sort of, you know, figures of witches and stuff outside kind of hanging there. If I was to walk up now, I'd go, oh, for God's sake, this is lame. But as a seven or eight-year-old kid, this was scary stuff. So my parents took us there, my brother and sister and I. My brother and sister went through and were scared and all that sort of stuff, came out the other side. And you had to go through the sort of haunted house or mobile home to get to the other side, which was separated by a fence, to get into the rest of the park. I didn't want to go in. Like, my parents were cajoling me, like, come on, you know, your, your brother and sister, your younger brother, younger sister did it, and nothing they could do would get me to go through that haunted house. I was really scared. And so what finally got me in was my brother on the other side of the fence taunting me yeah. and saying, Freddy Cat, Freddy Cat, Freddy Cat, come on, you big wuss. So I finally went in, and, you know, it was really scary, and I actually scraped my elbow when one of the animatronic monsters came out. I was like, ah. But I got through, and then once you're through, you realize, okay, Right. And then I did it again, and it wasn't nearly as scary the second time through. But that, why would we subject ourselves to that? I mean, we willingly, knowingly subject ourselves to things like haunted houses. We go to see films like The Blair Witch Project is another perfect example. I saw that in a packed theater. If you really look at The Blair Witch Project, it's a deadly dull film once you've seen it. But if you haven't seen it, it's not deadly dull because it's all the suspense, you know, suspense and everything like something's got to happen. Right. Eventually it's like. Rah. And when something finally did happen, that time I went to see the Blair Witch Project, there's a high school girl. My fiance was sitting on my right side. There's a, a high school girl that was sitting on my immediate left. And for anyone who's seen the Blair Witch Project, you know, at the end, there's she goes down into the basement. And it's this you know kind of reveal moment. And when that happened, she, the high school girl literally reached over and she was going for the uh, chair arm. But because my arm was resting on it, she got my arm and she didn't care. She dug her fingernails into my arm and actually you know, scratched me. It was like, you know, really? And she was screaming and everyone in the theater was screaming and I was scared too. And, <laughs> but this, this high school girl digging into my arm added, you know, it was this kind of co-creation amongst all of us. We were just ramping up everybody's. And if you look at it now, you go, well, it's not actually really all that scary. But it was, it was the communal experience. Why, again, would we subject ourselves to that? Because we like being scared. Because we like to confront the unknown, even if it's in the form of entertainment. 
Um, and I think that it challenges us. It makes us feel alive. It reminds us of who we are. And, and it, I think it makes us think, too. You know, how far would we go with this? Well, okay. It's a very long-winded way of getting back to the ghost thing because I think that's what the ghost, having done it now for 13 episodes a few years ago, sort of quote, quote, ghost hunting, I think that's what the whole ghost thing is about or whatever you want to call ghosts. Let's call poltergeists. Let's call, let's lump them all in and just call that phenomena ghosts. Yeah. Because I don't believe it's the relatives of dear old, you know, our relatives, dear old granny forced to wander the same hall for all eternity. Unless you view God as having the creative sensibilities of your average American reality television producer, I'd like to think that the afterlife, should it exist, is somewhat less banal than that. Even if you're stuck in purgatory, they, you know, it would be less banal than wandering like, rattling your chains. So I reject that for a whole host of reasons. I think it's much more interesting. I think it is like a fear factory, and not in a bad way. They're, they're not trying to harm us, but it is one of the ways that they are trying to interact with us, to stimulate our imagination, to make us think, to make us experience life in all its various facets. And so when I look at the ghost phenomena, um, I won't call it ghost phenomena. I'll just, when I look at ghosts and ghost stories, that's what I see. And that's what I think I experienced in some of the things that I describe in the book, which were our, our adventures in uh, Canada and the United Kingdom doing ghost cases. And then in a separate chapter, my own adventures in Czech, Chesky Krumlov, which is a town in the south, southern Czech Republic, yeah. where I was with Holly Stevens when I um, ran into what many people would call a shadow person or a man in black or whatever you want to call it. But I had a very, um, frankly, frightening kind of series of encounters one night while walking through this deserted town by myself. And so I talk about that for the first time. I've never, I had never discussed it in, i in, uh, I don't think in any radio shows. I think I'd written about it briefly on my blog before I, I stopped writing at my blog. And, but I had never told Holly. I didn't even tell Holly at the time. It was an experience that I had trouble processing. So I did what I usually do. And this becomes clear in the book, too. I, I call it, I pocketed it. I put it in my pocket and didn't let anybody else see it. And, um, and I've sort of finally processed it. And I figure, you know what? Human history is replete with people who've had strange experiences. It's nothing to be embarrassed about. You can look at the history of religious leaders. And I talk in the book about Henry Allen in particular, which is a, one of Canada's foremost evangelists back in the 18th century. He started the first Great Awakening in the maritime colonies here in Canada, or as it was known then, the British Empire. And he had his own experience, which he wrote about in his book, in which he used to launch a religious revival that transformed life really in society here in the maritime colonies, but also then bled into New England and linked up with the American evangelical tradition. And I use the term evangelical not as you might understand it today, which is Jerry Falwell and Fire and Brimstone, but evangelical 200, 300 years ago when that tradition infused everything about our society. Um, and so that's where Alan was coming from. But he had this, Rich Reynolds is talked about it, his, an encounter when he read my book, he described it as an encounter with a cosmic consciousness, which is a term that a Canadian writer used in the 19th century to describe these experiences that some people had had um, with what they called the divine or whatever you want to call it. So cosmic consciousness works. That's a good term. Henry Allen referred to it as being ravished by the spirit. He was actually walking through a field 
And it was a very, almost a sexual experience when you listen to him describe it. Wrapped up in God, ravished by the Spirit, all the very, very, I mean, he was using Christian imagery that was common at the time, but he went well beyond that into Christian mysticism. Mm -hmm. um, very, very strong experience. And that changed his life. It sort of, you know, it was one of those pivot points where he went off and, um, and began uh, preaching just in, in houses and churches and eventually um, restructuring the very nature of religion in the Maritimes. So, you know, that's the experience that I'm most familiar with or the, the case that I'm most familiar with because I studied Alan extensively when I was a graduate student in history. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, every region has somebody like Henry Allen, whether it's John Wesley or, or whomever, you, whether it's St. Paul on the road to Damascus. Talk right. about an experience with a cosmic consciousness. <laughs> you know, he allegedly met the Son of God. Well, whether Jesus was the Son of God or not, I don't know. But I take it, you know, I accept that Paul had an experience. I accept that Henry Allen had an experience. So why would I be ashamed or embarrassed by an experience that I had? Now, it wasn't the same one that St. Paul had or Henry Allen had. It didn't manifest in the same way. But I think that I was dealing with the same, if you will, cosmic consciousness that interacts or at least is willing to interact with all of us if we're willing to open the door to it or buy a ticket. And so it probably comes as no coincidence that my experience with the shadow people, if you want to call it that, happened after I'd spent a year um, opening myself to the possibilities of the paranormal, of this sort of advanced non-human intelligence, by hosting and directing and writing a show about ghosts. So I was primed, if you will. I was sort of receptive, more so than I had probably ever been in my life, given the experiences I had accumulated over that period of time to having that kind of experience that I had in Chesky Krimlov, which leads me to your original question, which you asked about 18 hours ago. Yeah. You know, where, where did the run of synchronicities come from? Well, the run of synchronicities happened in 2011, which was two years after the ghost thing and the Chesky Krimlov thing and a lot of other things that were going on in my life. Um, and I think that kind of, you know, was me buying a ticket and sort of opening or opening the door, whatever you want to call it, and saying, okay, bring it on. I'm willing to see what you have. And uh, I think, I think they did. <laughs> I think I did see what they have. And so, you know, Walter Bosley, for instance, when he talks about his experiences that um, that he's had, uh, I take him at his word. And I think Walter bought a ticket. I think whether it's oh my god, I just compared Walter to Saint Paul and Henry Allen. Uh, <laughs> I compared myself to Saint Paul and Henry Allen. Uh, you you compared them in saying that the, all of you are humans. Right. We're all going to see a movie. It might be we're all at the multiplex. And so maybe Henry Allen buys a ticket and he winds up seeing, um, you know, a, a romantic comedy, to use an example. I buy a ticket. I'm at the same theater, but I wind up seeing Saw 7 or The Dark Knight Returns or whatever. We can all see different movies, but we're all at the same multiplex. It's all the same form of entertainment or of interaction. It's just we're seeing different sort of forms of it. And so, again, to use the artistic uh Metaphor. Sort of me metaphor. You can go to the Getty Center and you can choose to go see 19th century art from France. Did I just say France? Oh you said God. France. Can't believe I did that. 19th century art from France. France. Yeah. Um, or you can go down and see, as the last time I was there, they had that exhibit from from Paris. Or you could go down and you could see an, an exhibit of photographs and artwork from Cuba in the 1950s, just before and then just after the revolution. Um, and there were many other 
sort of forms of exhibits that you could see. All of it is different, but all of it is the same, if you understand what I'm saying. It's all yeah. form of expression. It's just different forms of expression. So I view the UFO thing as a different form of expression from the ghost thing, as a different form of expression from the synchronicity thing. But I think it's all coming from the same place. Uh, and then you can get into a debate over where you think that place is or what it means. And I talk about that a bit in the book. But that, you know, everybody can have their own sort of different answer. At the end of the day, I don't really think it matters all that much, whether there's space aliens from outer space or whether it's what we would traditionally call God or whether it's extra dimensionals or crypto terrestrials or whether it's even ourselves, whether we're all creating this in our own minds um, as sort of maybe young speculated. I don't think it matters. What I think matters and what we should be talking about, and I think this is where ufology has lost its way in the last, well, forever, really, is it's more concerned with trying to prove it's space aliens or trying to prove somebody else trying to prove it's extra dimensionals and not space aliens. I say straight up at the beginning of the book, look, this is not a book for the believers or disbelievers. I'm not interested in preaching to the converted about a particular theory. I'm just going to accept that there's an advanced non-human intelligence. I don't really care who it is, but I'm going to try and figure out or speculate as to why it might be interacting with us. That, to me, is the real issue, if you will, when we look at all of this. And so I think that all of this has a great, you know, we have, a, we have more in common. And by we, I say people who are interested in the paranormal. And here's a, this is really kind of, I, when you first met me, you never probably would have heard me say this. I think we have much more in common with religion. And I mean that in a good way. And philosophers and all of those, you know, people. And I think we have much less in common with mainstream science. And I think the effort to, which I was a part of for a while, to get mainstream science to somehow investigate the UFO phenomenon or, or God forbid, investigate ghosts. Good luck with that. Um, using scientific equipment and everything, I don't think that's that's the end game. I don't think that's particularly relevant. I think science has its own thing, and it's and it's very good at it. But I think there are these metaphysical questions that science is less. It's not less good at. It's just it's not designed to deal with. And so, but I don't think the two. I don't think one has to rule out the other. I think part of the human experience is yes, science is very good and go off and and create cures for cancer and do all these very useful things. But at the end of the day, if you want to look at meaning, like the meaning of the human existence, that's not a question for science. That's a question for philosophers, for religious and spiritual leaders. Um, I think people who deal with the paranormal fit in there as well, because I think they're on that same path, that they're trying to answer the really big questions. Who are we? Where, are we, where have we been? Where are we now? And where are we going? And I think that that can walk hand in hand with science. I do not believe that the two are mutually exclusive. And as I point out in the book, in the opening, in the introduction, it's really a 20th century in invention amongst scientists, at least those scientists who would tell you this, that the two are mutually exclusive. Because Isaac Newton, who is, I think, without fear of contradiction, you could say is probably the greatest scientist of all time, or certainly if you had to put, here's who are the top 10 scientists of all time, Newton would be on that list and very close to the top. It's like arguing Beatles versus Rolling Stones. Well, Newton actually, Newton actually wrote more about religion and faith and spirituality than he did science. He certainly didn't see the two as mutually exclusive. He saw them as two different sides to the same coin, traveling on the same path, but for different reasons. Yeah. 
And so this this myth, this fiction that science and religion or science and um, spirituality or science and the paranormal are mutually exclusive is just that to me. It's a myth, which is not to say that I think you should be teaching intelligent design in school classrooms under the rubric of science, um, which unfortunately is what some people take when somebody says what I just said. No, but conversely, I don't think you can take religion or spirituality or faith or or philosophy or ex any of that stuff out of the discussion when we're talking about who we are. So there you go. Okay, we've been talking with Paul Kimmel. <laughs> right, and thanks everybody for listening. Uh, the comment form is open here at Radio Mysterio, so feel free to trash best evidence and um, you know talk about things that have absolutely nothing to do with what I'm talking about here now. Go for that. Uh, they, people are pretty topical on the list. Yeah, I know. Not always, but sometimes. Usually, most of the time. How did and, all this... I mean, you weren't even talking about this uh, when I first met you. What what led you to all this... Uh, all, uh, all these conclusions? I mean, I've... I've pretty... I like 95% agree with what you're saying. Just like when I talk with Nick, you know? You agree with Nick 95%. I... I'm lucky if I can get seven or eight <laughs> percent. No, about the about the paranormal UFO stuff. That's, that's yeah, I know. That's what I meant too. Oh, seriously, the man's crazy. He's insane. No, I'm just kidding. It's at least twenty percent. Um, well, you know, it's it's weird because I've had this public persona in whatever UFO research or you know, prior to making my first film in 2001, I cared. If you were to list the um, the top hundred things in life that I cared about and actually paid attention to the paranormal wasn't even on that list. Yeah. So I, I became, I mean, I was certainly aware of it. Stan Friedman was, and still is my uncle. I had talked to him. I'd seen him lecture, but I had no real interest in UFOs, you know, not really an interest in the paranormal as we might define it. My great or my great grandfather, my grandfather was a reformed Baptist minister. I was certainly familiar with religion and um, spirituality, but I was an agnostic so I was interested in all that stuff, but, you know, I had a lot of other things that I was much more interested in, politics, sports, business, all the things, living my life. And, you know, after 10 years of of being in the UFO field or whatever, I think what people saw was the more materialistic side of me, which is the side that I manifested publicly. Now, when I say I wasn't interested, that's to say I wasn't publicly interested in talking about it. It's not to say that I wasn't or I wasn't even interested maybe in, in talking about it with most of my friends. There are, and you know, I tell a couple stories in the book about one or two of my friends that going back as long as I've known them, we would talk about these things. A friend of mine named Peter Black, who I've known since high school, my best friend, uh, we went to law school together, coincidentally enough. We would sit, he lived in the law frat, so we would go uh, sit, drink heavily light small fires in the middle of the room, pray to the elder gods, talk about Christian mysticism, Marxism, you know, a whole range of stuff, spirituality, while getting progressively drunker, which is the best time to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I wasn't talking about it. It's just it wasn't something I was interested in talking about publicly because I thought it was a very personal and private thing. Um, and, I, you know, I, contrary to popular opinion, I don't like pushing my personal and private beliefs on other people. So when people would hear me talk in 2004 or 2006 on a radio show or something, I was talking as a filmmaker. I was talking because I had a 
business interest, a vested interest. Those were the things that I was doing. So yeah, I was plugging films. I wasn't certainly being dishonest, but that was the side of me that people were getting. And so I had a vested interest too in um, promoting the scientific research because that's what I was making films about. And I believed in it as well. But there was this other side of me that I that I wasn't talking about that frankly, you know, I was a little embarrassed about too because um, I, I've seen, I, I don't have much use for proselytizers and, and people that put their religion or even their science, you know, their belief in pure science. I don't like people putting that in your face and saying, this is the only way you have to have this way. So, you know, maybe I've become more comfortable, I guess, uh, in the last couple of years with that aspect of what interests me. And I think, you know, Rich Reynolds would probably say, he put me on his list of death. And I mean that in a good way, Rich, if you're listening, you know, uh, and he'd say, well, Paul has reached middle age, which I have. And I think when we reach middle age, maybe our points of view change a bit. And uh, I also mentioned in the book, too, it, it is a book. Nick Pope, when he did his sort of review or whatever, said it's a very personal journey. I mean, it is. I kind of open up about some of the personal stuff and talk about the last couple of years uh, have not been the easiest years in my life either. So I think that plays into it, too. I think you start to take stock of where you are in your life and some people would call it a midlife crisis i wouldn't i'd just say my my eternal kiss film was a disaster and you were on you're the only thing that kept me from completely going crazy and shooting everyone in a orgy of you know postal <laughs> office violence um to explain just how much of a nightmare eternal kiss was you know i had been riding high for eight or nine years i had a very successful career as a filmmaker i had succeeded at everything I had done. I created films that sold. I had, I had sold for networks. I had done television series. So I was by any measure um, successful. Not Steven Spielberg successful, but certainly successful uh, within the Canadian industry and, and moving forward, always moving forward. Eternal Kiss brought that to a screeching halt um, for a lot of reasons, some of which had to do with my own hubris, which had kind of run amok by then. Um, some of which had to do with the economic collapse in the United States, which literally, as you would recall, happened as we were shooting. Yeah. So, you know, I had private American investment. Our distributor bailed all of largely because the money was just in the United States was boom. You know, there people who were going to invest no longer could because they didn't have the money to invest anymore. Right. Their 401ks or whatever you folks call it were being looted and whatever. So most of my life savings gone. Because at the end of the day, when you're the guy sitting, everybody thinks the film industry is glamorous. Let me tell you something. It is, I guess, in some respects. But when you're the guy who's ultimately responsible for the, the business end of it, when somebody comes and says, I need to get paid, or uh, this needs to be paid, or that needs to be paid, they don't really care that there's an economic collapse and a lot of your money just disappeared. They just want to get paid. So your two choices are to go bankrupt and completely destroy the film and it never gets made and that'll ruin your career or to pay them. So my personal savings gone, my salary on the film gone and my, you know, psychic health. And you know why um, there was just so much crazy stuff going on. Gone. So that kind of, you know, I think we all have Terry Gilliams had about five of those experiences in his career, but that was my lost in La Mancha moment. And, you know, I think after that I, I emerged what is the old saying? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. So I think that was part of it. I think Mac dying a year later, he passed away a, a year 
almost to the day after we filmed finished filming Eternal Kiss. Mm-hmm. So my Ghost Cases thing that was the year in between, uh, that was a partnership that with my um, business partner that didn't work out. And then Mac dying. You know, I just think it was a year of we not bad stuff because there were there was good stuff in there, but it was a trying time, if you will. The yeah. troubles. It was a troubled time, as the Queen might say. Yeah. My honest horribleness, as she would have said. And I, you know, I think when you have that kind of thing, it focuses your attention less on the materialistic side of your life and more on, hey, let's step back, let's take a look at what the big picture is here. Because right now the little picture is really, really crummy. So let's see if we can have a look at what the big picture is. And I think when I did that, you know, I really got in touch more with that other aspect of my interests and personality that had been, if not dormant, but had been kept inside. And so, you know, once I took a look at the big picture, I thought, yeah, actually, this is the better part of the picture. This is the more important part of the picture. Uh, this is the part of the picture that that I've been talking to myself about. So if I was having interviews with myself as opposed to coast to coast or wherever, the interviews I was having with myself were all about the big picture stuff. The interviews I was having on Coast to Coast or the Paracast were about the materialistic stuff, you know, the very scientific-oriented, case-oriented stuff like that. And, yeah, a light switch went off in my head, and and I said, yeah, I don't want to talk about that stuff anymore because I don't think it's as important. I think the more important stuff is to talk about the big picture stuff. And so now that's what I'm talking about. That's what interests me. Yeah. And uh, and in a sense, that probably brings me to where you've been. And, and clearly, hanging out with you and Mac and to a lesser extent, Nick. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and Nick. Nick's not even going to listen to this. So no, probably not. Hanging out with you and Mac and Nick, getting to know you guys. Um, other folks like Stuart Miller, the yeah. late Stuart Miller in the United Kingdom, who had a very uh, sort of broad view of all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, even within the paranormal thing, has has certainly changed my way of looking at things, too. So, you know, there's a whole host of things that are... They're at work there. Um, but when you know when you read the book, you'll be able to go back and see examples like, oh, well, Kimball's clearly lying. This is just, he's changing because, uh, I can actually imagine a few people saying this. He's changing because he's discovered that you can make more money selling the new agey stuff than you can selling the nuts and bolts stuff. Um, I don't even know if that's true. I doubt that that's true. Even if it is true, I don't care. Because if you look at the book, you'll be able to see this goes back, in some cases, to experiences I had when I was younger, um, especially when you look at the chapter on uh, reincarnation. It also goes back to, um, I've lost two very, very good friends in my life in at, at a very young age. Mac, obviously, is one of them, but I had a friend, Gil Ladder, one of my high school. It was a group of about six of us in high school. He was one of that group of, of really, you know, sort of like the stand-by-me kind of best friends group. Yeah. He died in 1989 uh, in a car accident coming home from uh, he was attending college in Sackville, New Brunswick, which is about four hours from here. He was in a single car accident, drove off the road and was killed. That was two years after I had had my own single car accident where I drove my dad's Audi off a city street on an icy patch, went over a hill and, you know, a tree came through the window. I wrecked the car, but a tree came through the driver's side window at the exact time as my head jerked forward, the tree passed, the branch of the tree passed about two inches behind my head. If my head had jerked forward at a different rate of speed or if we'd hit it, whatever, I shouldn't be here anyway. Um, and that, so that's something that I've lived with for 25 years. 
is this idea that, you know, I'm living on borrowed time. Haven't really ever talked about it publicly, but now talking about it publicly. So there's an entire chapter called The Eternal Now where I talk about time travel, I talk about alternate worlds, but every year since Gill died in 1989, in fact, I just did it last weekend, he's buried over in Dartmouth, which is the uh, the city across from, Hel well, it's all one city now, but it's the part of Halifax across the harbor. I drive all the way out to his cemetery every year. Uh, I take a, when I started doing this, it was a Walkman. It tells you how technology has changed. Now it's my MP3 player. So I had cassette tapes when I started. Now I have, you know, 3,000 songs on my MP3 player, which is the size of a, I don't know, the teeny tiny thing. And I always go over, I sit down next to his uh, grave, his um, tombstone, and I read to him from uh, Albert Camus' The Stranger. And I listen, among other things, but I put my Walkman on. And every year I listen to Paul Simon, well, Paul Simon wrote it, but Simon Garfunkel's A Hazy Shade of Winter. Or, if you grew up in the 80s, The Bangles. I have both versions, so, <laughs> you know, you can listen to The Bangles sing it too. But that, that line in A Hazy Shade of Winter, time, 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 come see what's become of me. And so, you know, if you look at the idea of, like, just where we are in our lives, Gil was just this, he was such a sweet guy. Uh, and in the book, I have pictures from our high school yearbook of him and me. This, and this was at the period where I was at the height of my arrogance. You know, a national debating champion, uh, you know, high honors student, medals and awards everywhere. And Gil was a very bright guy, too. But, I mean, I was at, this was the apotheosis of my hubris as a young man. Thought I was indestructible. So if you look, even if you look at the two pictures, I look at the picture of me, I see a smirk. There's something in my eyes that just says, I'm smarter than you. I know I can beat you. I know I can beat anything. And then I look in Gil's eyes and I see um, he's softer. He doesn't have a smirk. He just has kind of a like, I'm happy to be here sort of thing. And so I kind of look and I, I write the book, you know, which one of us in an ideal world would have survived? And part of me thinks it should have been Gil, not me. That, you know, I shouldn't be talking to you now. Gil should be living a happy life with a wife and kids. And he probably would have made a better life than, you know, I have, or at least he would have made a good life. And then I say, well, I like to think that in some alternate universe, Gil is sitting in a cemetery next to my tombstone, reading the same book, playing the same songs on his MP3 player, whatever they use in that universe, every year, and hanging out with me. Because in that universe, I died and he didn't, and maybe that's a more just universe. But that's not the one I get to live in. So those, those kinds of things, you know, uh, for anyone who would say, well, I don't care what people think, but if anyone say, I'm just trying to cash in, no. We all have our own personal narrative. We, own, we all have our own story. Uh, my personal one is not one that I've been comfortable talking about. Uh, contrary to those people that would think that I'm a, a blowhard that just likes to talk about himself, no. There's, there's the outer self that you talk about. The inner self I'm much less comfortable talking about. But I've decided, you know what, maybe it's time I talk about it to an extent. And, you know, maybe people can learn something from my own experiences, just as I've learned from other people's experiences, by reading other people talk about their experiences, whether they're paranormal or existential or whether it's reading the beats um, or, or whatever. There's one of the things I do agree with Nick on, by the way. Big Sur is a superior novel to On the Road, if you're a Kerouac fan. I like On the Road, but... Nick and I both agree Big Sur is a better better book. So, All right. Well, I haven't read either of them, so I've missed out. 
Well, neither's Nick. I'm sure he hasn't read them, but yeah, yeah. well, he read it on Wikipedia or something. This right. is horrible. Nick's a wonderful guy. I should make fun of him. <laughs> In fact, Nick's you know now that I've started a publishing company, Nick's going to be the third book that I publish. Um, so we signed Nick up to do a uh, a book on uh, what is it? I can't remember. I think it's Sinister Tales of the Men in Black. So stories that people have told him over the last couple of years about the men in black and shadow people and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I'm, I'm actually really excited. Forget about my book. I'm really excited to start to be publishing, to have create a publishing company and already signed up a number of authors. I'll be, I'll be uh, creating Mac, turning Mac Tony's blog, Post Human Blues, into a series of books because I think it's a tremendous resource. And I think, you know, people can go on the website and work their way through it. But who knows how long the Internet's going to be here or who knows how long that's going to be around. The kind of stuff, the things that Mac was writing about, they they need to be in book form so that they can exist even if that website disappears someday. Right. Uh, Aaron Gullius, who's got a new book coming out next year, well, his first book, really, so not oh, it's new and his first book, Extraterrestrials in the American Zeitgeist, a historian from the United States, from Michigan, uh, also very interested in the paranormal. So, yeah, I'm, Aaron's going to be writing a book. Uh, not that book, but writing a book for uh, for Red Star Books. And hopefully, you know, Greg will write a book, too. The more the merrier. People that I like, that's the great thing about starting a publishing company or having a film company. I, I can do the kinds of things, because I'm not terribly worried about dirty, filthy lucre. I'm happy to live in near-abject poverty. Um, you know, I don't need a whole lot of money to survive. So I, it allows, that kind of attitude allows you the freedom to say, well, you know what, I'm not going to waste all my time or spend all my time trying to make a zillion dollars. I'm just going to, I'm more interested in doing things that interest me. And uh, the things that interest me now and for the last few years have been things like the stuff that you would write or that Mac was writing. And if I can help find, give those things a broader audience and also get my own ideas out there, then that's really what Red Star Films was all about. That's what Red Star Books is going to be about. Um, that's what my music career was about. So, yeah, I'm just, it's a continuation of what I've been doing just more public with the personal stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. At some point, I guess it's a shit or get off the pot thing. I mean, either move on to another subject or tell people what you really think, you know? Well, I mean, yeah, it's not like I've been, well, I have been hiding stuff, I guess, or at least not talking. It's just, you choose what to talk about. And yeah. so for whatever, re I mean, everybody, nobody will ever be able to tell everybody else everything that they're, they're thinking. Um, you'll always have something in your mind that you haven't told somebody else. But, you know, as life goes on and you go longer and longer, um, different stories, new stories, more stories, whatever you want to call it, they come out. And part of that is, you know, part of that's in the book. I mean, I also talk about the RB47 case in the book, too. So yeah. it's not like I've completely well, left you have, Yeah, you do go to, into stuff. it in some detail about who was involved and what their level, uh, level of expertise was. Just to prove to the reader, no, this isn't just some bullshit thing with a bunch of farmers or at least uneducated people who don't know what the hell they're looking at. Well, it's it's not that. I mean, there's I've run across lots of cases with so-called uneducated people um, that I think are great cases. Henry Allen was not... Um, terribly well educated, although for his time, you know, reasonably well, at least in the Bible and stuff like that. That's our so standards, Paul. I'm talking about the yes, greater society know, where they shouldn't care about that shit. You know, I know it's not your standard because, uh, but it's uh, we're all human beings at one point or another. So I don't think our our education, and I, I'm this is not directed to you, but it's directed at society. I don't think our education. You know, you're not going to have an experience because you've gone to Yale and that guy's not good. 
or you're going to have an experience because you went to Yale and that guy's not because he's a farmer in Oklahoma. I mean, at some point, whatever the advanced non-human intelligence is, it would look at a guy with a degree from Yale or Harvard and a farmer from Ethiopia or whatever and say, well, you're all the same, which is kind of the point we're trying to drive home to you. If Do we have to write it down? Eh, back to the contactee thing. Um, so, you know, what were we talking about? Now I've completely lost my train of thought. Uh, RB-47. Oh, the RB-47 case, right. The great thing about the RB-47 case is um, I, fit, I think it fits into that artistic framework where you can look at it and say, nobody ever saw a uh, flying saucer and that's a bolt space, spacecraft. And even if they did, it could be, um, you know, it could be an image that the advanced non-human intelligence created. It was interacting with their gear. It was fry, It was sending, in a way, messages saying, here, look, this is a mystery. And in the chapter on synchronicities, I talk about mysteries. That's the sort of human uh, puzzles and mysteries. That's the human analogy I draw to it. Everything from the Rubik's Cube to Sudoku to um, M. Night Shyamalan films with their twist endings. You know, we love mysteries. So the RB-47 case is one of those things. It's a great mystery. You've got this, most UFO cases are like this. You've got this thing that is just outside of our comprehension. We can't quite grasp it. We can come up with ideas. We can stick labels on it. But at the end of the day, none of those labels are determinative because we can't prove it in the sense that, hey, here's the actual alien spacecraft, and here's Zorg from Zeta Reticuli. Literally, here he is, introducing Zorg. And even if you could do that, how would you know it still wasn't a game that was being played on you? So the RB-47 case, I include that. I also include a case from... Canada, Lower Sackville, which is a part of Halifax now, but it's back then in 1976. It was a town that it's about 15 miles from where I live. Yeah. Where I think I've talked about this on your show before, so I'll I don't keep know if it... you talk... No, maybe you have, but you should repeat it. It's a it's a good case. Yeah, it's an RCMP clearly on what was a slow night because having worked for the RCMP myself, let me tell you, if you have a choice between a case where a guy's beating his wife. And a phone call comes in saying, there's a strange light over my house. You go with the wife beater. Yeah. That's the one. <laughs> yeah. So he, whoever the constable Ferran, who was the RCMP officer stationed in Lower Sackville, was clearly having a slow night. Call comes in. Oh, there's a strange light and, you know, over our house and stuff. And so he goes out and uh, he talks to these two people. He sees it himself. He checks with the local airport, um, various other authorities, all of which say, no, it's nothing of ours. You know, don't know what it is. He, he says, look, it was clearly not a planet. Um, you know, he runs down the list of things that it could have been said, well, I don't know what it is. Then he does what a good police officer would do. He goes next door to see if there are other witnesses. Well, when he goes next door, knocks on the door, the people who come to the door, and I'm making a sort of long story short, the people who come to the door, it takes them a while to get there. Turns out they had been hiding under their bed because what they had experienced, they hadn't seen the lights in the sky. They had experienced sort of loud rumbling noises that were shaking their very house, as they described it to investigator Chris Stiles later, and um, had really scared the proverbial bejesus out of them. So they were hiding in their bedroom at the same time as the police officer and these two other people were sort of standing on the porch watching this display of lights. That, to me, is the epitome of what Jacques Vallée called the high strangeness case, where you have clearly something, let's call it paranormal, in the same place is happening to two different groups of people, but in two entirely different ways. And that's the kind of thing that I would say, it's almost like watching a film 
and an M. Night Shyamalan film, if you will, where you're getting one storyline and you're getting another storyline. And is, do the two storylines relate? And in this case, I think they did because, I mean, time and space, that's clearly happening in the same time in the same space. But it's being perceived in two different ways or not being perceived in two different ways, but it's manifesting itself in two di entirely different ways. Because the people who saw the light said, no, there's no sound. We hear nothing. It's just these lights. The people who were having the sound and the house shaking and all that, entirely different. No, we didn't see any lights. We just had this other thing. Well, what you know, if you're a police officer at that point, you're kind of hoping you get a call about somebody beating their wife or some shooting that's taken place because what do you do with that? You know, you can solve those other cases and arrest somebody. But here, all he could do is file a report, shrug his shoulders and say, I have no idea. It's just weird. And, you know, the RCMP, I, I actually had coffee with Don Ledger today, who's probably best known in the UFO world for um, being one of the two primary writers, Chris Stiles being the other one on the Shag Harbor uh, case, The Dark Object was the name of the book. Yeah. And as Don and I were talking, and we'd actually met to talk about something completely different, but we got around to talking about UFOs, as we always do. And Don was just rattling off case after case after case from RCMP files that he had seen of, of similar sorts of things where the police would just say, including police officers having sightings, where they say, I don't know. It's not like we can arrest whatever we saw in the sky or we experienced, but we're writing it up anyway. And those files are all, you know, in the public domain. You can you can access them up here. When you're confronted with case after case after case after case like that from competent, quality witnesses, the kind of witnesses that if I was, and here I'm going to go back to my more materialistic side for just a second, the kind of witnesses that if I was to take into a court of law, I could convict people on if I was a crown prosecutor or a district attorney, as, as you um, rebels say in the United States. We still call you rebels up here in Canada, you disloyal traitors um, to the empire. But, you know, you could convict people on that kind of testimony. I, I've seen it done. I've been a witness on the stand as a police officer and seen people um, convicted based on our testimony. I've seen people in when I was a legal aid uh, student at Dalhousie Legal Aid convicted based on witness testimony. So here we have some really competent, qualified, really good witness testimony. It is replete throughout the UFO lore. And there's a lot of bad cases too, don't get me wrong, but there are a lot of good cases. To dismiss that and simply say, well, that's not what science requires is ridiculous and demonstrates the intellectual bankruptcy of the disbelievers. Now, I could give lots of examples that demonstrate the intellectual bankruptcy of the true believers. <laughs> between, no, we, do, we do that too much on this show anyway. I know. So let's not do it here. But between the two is what you called, um, or was it your friend? Whatever. The excluded middle, which is a great way of looking at it, that you have these extremes on either side that are very similar to each other in the way they approach it. And they are locked um, in this sort of banal kind of back and forth between each other to try and prove that one is right and the other is wrong. It's very junior high school or even elementary school. It has nothing to do with the actual mystery itself. It has a lot more to do with who those people are and whatever their issues are. Meanwhile, well, everybody a... else would look at this and they'd just go, or you should. I, I just boggles my mind that people wouldn't look at all of this stuff and go, hey, there's a mystery here. This is interesting. This is whatever it is. This is kind of fun. And that's what the bards have been doing for hundreds and thousands of years. They've been telling these stories. And by bards now, you know, Stan Friedman is a bard. Um, Kevin Randall is a bard. Whoever writes Helen Creighton, who is a 
the great maritime folklorist here in the maritime provinces wrote the seminal work, Blue Nose Ghosts, wherein she collected all of the stories or as many stories as she could find, went around the province of Nova Scotia because we're known as the Blue Nose province here based on the, the old sailing ship, the Blue Nose. It's on our dime in Canada. So Blue Nose Ghosts, we're, Nova Scotians are known as Blue Nosers, to explain it to your listeners who are not from Nova Scotia, which is probably all of them. So, you know, Helen Creighton, a great folklorist, uh, Andy, Andy uh, Roberts or Dave Clark in the United Kingdom, um, forget about what their conclusions might be, but just the fact that they have um, taken these stories and put them in the form of books, whether it be in Clark's case, UFOs, or he's also written about various folkloric aspects of the United Kingdom. Nick Redfern, one of the great bards of the sort of paranormal, those kinds of people. But that's been going on for hundreds and thousands of years. You can't ignore that sort of stuff. And you have to be willing to look at the similarities, not just the similarities, but well, okay, I'll leave it at similarities. The similarities between the types of accounts that you're getting from, oh, this person sees a ghost, that person sees a UFO, that person experiences synchronicity. Well, instead of separate, or Bigfoot, throw Bigfoot in there too. Instead of separating all of those things and saying, well, the UFO people can never, like ghosts, UFOs are deadly. I've actually heard this. Um, UFO, in fact, I heard it from the ghost, I'll flip it around. I heard it from the ghost people. Because when I was doing the ghost show, I, I was dealing with a number of people who consider themselves ghost investigators. And they would say, oh, what have you done? I'd say, oh, this and this and this. Oh, UFOs, that's crazy. Really? Because you're the one that's standing there with an EMF meter and a thermal camera and talking to spirits that you, or whatever you think they are that you can't even see saying, if you're here, give us a sign. And you think that you know the, the highly trained crew of the RB-47 in 1957 that had an encounter, that the police officer and the four people in Lower Sackville in 76 that had that encounter, and I can go on and on and on. Yeah. You think those people are crazy? You think that Greg and Nick and I are crazy for looking into that as well as looking into the ghost thing? That's nuts. And the UFO people do it to the ghost people too. It's crazy. It's all part of the same thing. And that's the, of all the things that Nick Redfern has gotten right over his career, he has consistently stressed that, that you cannot separate these things out from each other. You have to look at them as a whole. And I think Nick is absolutely correct on that. Just as you're talking, I, can you hear me? There we go. Yep. Yep. As you're talking, I'm, I'm, uh, for some reason, the, a song came into my head the other day that I used to hear when I was a kid. Not that I was a kid when the thing came out. It came out from 1950. One bright and sunny day, I saw a great big wooden box floating in the bay. I pulled it in and opened it up, and much to my surprise, ooh, I discovered a right before my eyes, ooh, I discovered a right before my eyes. I picked it up and ran to town as happy as a king. I took it to a guy I knew who'd buy most anything. But this is what he hollered at me as I walked in his shop. Ooh, get out of here with that. Before I call a cop, ooh, get out of here with that, before I call a cop. I turned around and got right out of running for my life, and then I took it home with me to give it to my wife. But this is what she hollered at me as I walked in the door, oh, get out of here with that, and don't come back no more, oh, get out of here with that, and don't come back no more. 
town until I chanced to meet a hobo who was looking for a hand out on the street. He said he'd take most any old thing. He was a desperate man. But when I showed him the... He turned around and ran. Oh, when I showed him the... He turned around and ran. I wandered on for many years, a victim of my fate, until one day I came upon St. Peter at the gate. And when I tried to take it inside, he told me where to go. Get out of here with that and take it down below. Oh, get out of here with that and take it down below. The moral of the story is if you're out on the beach and you should see a great big box and it's within your reach, don't ever stop and open it up. That's my advice to you. Cause you'll never get rid of them. No matter what you do. Oh, you'll never get rid of them. No matter what you do. Well, that's, that's, that song is an incredibly wonderful metaphor, I think. What song? You didn't hear that just now. No, I'm just kidding. No, I heard it. <laughs> Otherwise, you would have said, I don't hear anything about 10 seconds into it. Yeah, probably. Um, no, I love it. That's great. I had actually never heard that before. That's hilarious in a good way. Yes. Um, and yeah, no, it is. Uh, I should probably, you know, that should be my theme song. Any radio show I do from now on, I should be introduced with that song as opposed <laughs> to something by Morrissey or the Smiths. Yeah. Um, that, because that's, yeah. Can you think of a better metaphor? Well, not, uh, one of the better metaphors for everything we've been talking about here and uh, how it affects your life or, you know, how you should refer to it. There's not even words for it. It's just a banging noise. <laughs> I know. And it is, it's weird. I talk about getting, you know, drunk with my old friend Peter or whatever. And, and that there's something to be said for lubrication, sort of getting you, your words start to get slurred um, as the night goes on, but you know your 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 sort of self-imposed guidelines or safeguards or whatever it is. And by the way, um, this isn't always a good idea, especially if you're hanging out with young actresses, to have your self-imposed safeguards completely thrown to the wind. But when you're hanging out with your <laughs> old friends talking about spiritual and mystical things, ah, it's fine then. So, you know, that's why. Um, I'm certainly not against uh, the occasional drunken binge because I think that's, you sort of, it reveals sometimes in bad ways, but sometimes in good ways, who you really are at your central core. And I'm a happy-go-lucky drunk. Um, you know, I never, I never uh, once or twice, maybe I'll get angry. And I talk about one of those uh, instances in the book where I actually, for no real reason, got really angry at Ben Stevens, my friend who is a friend of Greg's as well, filmmaker here from Nova Scotia. Yeah. And um, and Holly Stevens' brother, my old Ghost Cases co-host. Sister. Or, sorry, no, he, well, I meant he's Holly Stevens' yes, brother. Yes, yes, okay. So, yeah. And uh, I wound up, you know, he literally dumped me at the bar. He said, you know, screw you or whatever. And they're totally right. I was being a complete ass and um, just bringing my own troubles into a conversation with a friend. And that I was walking home. On, this is how the chapter about me being dead starts. You know, I was walking home across the Halifax Commons in the middle of February, and I slipped on a patch of ice. I had I was drunk, slipped on a patch of ice, landed on the ice, and I thought I had broken my ribs at the time. Turns out I severely bruised them, so it was very painful. But, you know, I'm lying there on the ice, drunk, in pain, looking up at the night sky thinking, I should be dead. And, you know, there, there are just moments that happen in your life. I don't know how many of them are, there are. 
that if I live to be 80, here's hoping, um, that will be one of the moments I'll look back on and sort of go, yeah, that was one of those life-changing moments. It doesn't seem that way. Slipping, uh, on, slipping on the ice. Having a fight with a friend while drunk, walking home, slipping on the ice in the commons, landing, hurting yourself, and staring up the night sky and going, where the hell am I? What the <laughs> hell am I doing here? Yeah. And by the way, I should be dead. I'm just lucky to be here at all. Why am I angry about anything? Because, and I just started thinking about that car accident I had, and then my friend Gil, who was not here, and my friend Mac, who by that time, this happened after his death, was also not here. And and just thinking, these these guys don't get to fall on the ice. They don't get to hang out with a friend in a bar. They don't get to talk about anything. They don't even get to be angry at people anymore because they're dead. I mean, they might, and I talk about this in reincarnation, maybe they're back being angry at somebody else in another life. That's possible. <laughs> but those people that I knew, that incarnation of them, they're gone. And they're not coming back. So, but I'm still here. And, you know, I've got to come to grips with that. But I also, there's a, there's a message in there somewhere, which is stop being angry. Stop being confrontational and enjoy life. So, you know, that's... It's sort of what I've tried to do over the last... I've always tried to do that. You just didn't hear that on radio shows. And the truth is, as you know, Greg, um, here's the other side of truth for your listeners. Hmm. It is impossible to know any of us, whether it's you or Nick or me or Mac or Richard Hoagland or anybody, David Icke even. It's impossible to know anybody based on their public appearances. You can get an impression of them. You can get to... You can think you know them. But who are they really? And the only way, well, I don't even know if you could know them, even if you knew them, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Wait, that's that's very, yes, prime minister. I sound like a British civil servant. I don't even think you could get to know them if you knew them, if you know what I mean. What? <laughs> um, it's like something the minister would say, or the civil servant. I do servant. know what you mean, because everybody, people act differently with different people and in right. different situations. And if you know somebody over the long span of time in a personal way where they call you with their problems, maybe you know them a little bit better than, you know, somebody at work or whatever. You get a fuller picture of them than can be presented on a one or two or three hour radio show or a television show or whatever. Yeah. Uh, everybody knows me. I've been doing this show for years. So everybody's seen every side of me. Even I've even gotten angry on the show. I threw the phone across the room once. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed that one. Yeah. Uh, the closest I ever came was when I was needling Don Ecker about Vietnam, and I thought he was going to throw something at me, uh, <laughs> or throw himself at me and start pounding on me or something. I'll show you what it was like in Tanang. <laughs> um, that didn't happen, and we had pie afterwards, and we got along fine. Yes, but, pie smooths uh, over a lot of stuff. It certainly does, yes. um, especially at the House of Pies. In fact, so, as you say that, I'm, I'm going to make noise now because I'm going to the refrigerator to get a beer while I'm talking to you. Oh, I wish I could do that, but I don't have any beer in the fridge, and I have to go back to work after this. So I have to go to work after this, too, but I'm going to have a beer anyway. <laughs> well, great. My excuse makes absolutely no sense because my work is editing Mac Tony's uh, post-human blues book, which I could do drunk if I wanted to. Yeah. Uh, it'd probably look really interesting. What? Mac didn't write that. Meow, 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 meow. That doesn't sound like something he'd say. It's a profound, though. I like chicken. I like liver. Meow, mix, meow, mix. Please deliver. I mean, Yeah. That, I, I think Mac would have said that. Actually, he probably would, yeah, especially with his two cats. Yeah. So, you know, the best you can do when you're listening to stuff like this or listening to any of us is just try, and this, you know, I don't know who your listeners are. That's the other thing, too. So I could go on the comment page. I used to get, I joke, like earlier in the show when I was talking about the guy who, whatever his name is, who made a crack about best evidence and said it was a horrible film. I mean, I, I honestly 
and truly don't care. Because you could go to um, UFO TV has has it up on YouTube now, and um, I think it's at about 150,000 views or whatever. Great, I make some money off that. But you know, people, it's like a 90% positive and 10% negative and nice reviews and bad reviews and blah blah blah, all by people I don't know. Yeah. And the real truth is, I honestly don't care what anybody thinks of my ideas or my work or even me, except for a very small group of people. You can tell who they are in the acknowledgments of the book. I think they're pretty much all listed there uh, for the most part. Might have forgotten one or two people, but I don't think so. It's a long list of acknowledgments. Yeah. Those are the people who, in one way or another, and some of them are uh, dead, unfortunately, like Mac and Stuart Miller. But I've either cared about what they think because I respect their opinion or I like them or we're close or um, I continue to care what they think because they're still with us. If you're not in that list, then, you know, I don't really care what you think. I, I hope you get something out of what I say, even if I say 100% of stuff and you go, well, I only really like 30% of what he said or it only 30% made me think, great, well, then that's 30% more than, you know, you had when you had coming in. If you can listen to me or anybody, I can listen to David Icke. I think David Icke sort of crazy. <laughs> that's kind of sort of. Well, yeah, but I can listen to David Icke and you know what? I can pull out five or 10% of stuff that he's saying. And I say, look, if that wasn't David Icke saying it, if I could just imagine John Smith or, or Susan Smith saying it, that would make perfect sense to me. Well, no, then that's great. The, that's the stopped clock idea there, Paul. Well, in David Icke's case, yeah, maybe he is the stop clock, but maybe he's not. You know, maybe I could get 20%. I think it's more than the stop clock thing. <laughs> uh, Twice a day, you're going to agree with David Icke. Yeah, twice a day. I still wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want my employer if I was working at the office to see me looking at it um, on my computer screen. So I'd, I'd make sure I have something more respectable like porn. Yeah, uh, David that I could is switch not safe to. for work. Yeah, that should no. be that should be his his middle name, uh, David NSFW Ike. You know, maybe but Ike's really out there. Maybe a better example is Richard Hoagland, who is routinely derided by many within the UFO community and certainly by the um, the non-believers, shall we call them, the disbelievers, whatever. And you know what? Fair enough. A lot of what Hoagland says doesn't make sense, at least not to me. But some of what he has said over the years, over his career, does make sense, or at least is interesting. Yeah. It makes you think. Even if you don't agree with it at the end of the day, it makes you think. People can read my book, and please do, conveniently priced at fifteen ninety-five. There's my <laughs> sales pitch. Um, available on Amazon, blah, blah, blah. Yes. You know, read it, and even if you disagree with my conclusions, and I, I don't even know if I offer any conclusions, but if you disagree with the various things, the theories, whatever that I put out there, if you don't like the metaphor of art, great, fine. But there will be things in there that I think you can look at and say, oh, well, that's interesting. That I don't agree with him in terms of what he thinks of it, but that's an interesting experience. I wonder what that means. I have a different take on it. And that's the great thing about hanging out with Mac and you and Nick and, and Walter and, and other people. I, you know, I certainly don't agree with everything you guys say and vice versa, but we're always making each other think. And so having listened to you guys over the years, I realized one, a, I agree with you more than I thought I probably would have 10 years ago and B. Yeah. That's uh, because we make the most sense of anybody. You see, you are, you, <laughs> you, Nick, Greg, uh, Mac and Walter probably, did I just say you, Nick? I said you twice that like you're the king. Thank you. Uh, I think you guys, along with Plato, Aristotle, and um, you know those great Greek philosophers, the great thinkers in human history, and your cat, uh, Kitty, is is probably 
at the top of that list. Mm -hmm. Because you can just sit there with your cat and the cat will look up at you. And in those eyes, you can see all of human history as seen by, you know, cats. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. You know, it's weird. I actually talk about that in the book, too. In reincarnation, we have this idea that we are at the top of the food chain. So if you believe in reincarnation, well, maybe as we start as a paramecium, we move up to slug, we hit lizard at some point, we come back as a bird, and eventually we wind up as a human being after we stopped at monkey, badger, and zebra along the way or whatever. Well, okay, yeah, maybe. But maybe we go the other way. Let's assume that we are at one end of the totem pole on reincarnation. Well, maybe we start as humans and we work, I actually sort of tongue-cheekily kind of say, Remember this the next time you're having turkey at Christmas dinner or you're watching Michael Vick, uh, who went to jail for abusing dogs in yes. dogfighting scams, yeah. and you're cheering for the Philadelphia Eagles and Michael Vick. Remember these things the next time you're doing that. The possibility exists that we're the starting point and you're working your way back. So after this life is over, you come back as a dog and you work your way down to paramecium. I don't know. Um, this implies a hierarchy, which I always well, disagree with. I, I'm saying this assume that there is a hierarchy. Yes, yes, but there's a lot a, of people I, I, I am, I'm not saying I am there is. playing your game for the for the sake of and it's funny. And it's funny. And I'm playing yeah, and I'm playing somebody else's game because I don't assume there's a hierarchy either. And I talk about Thomas Nagel's work uh when the philosopher when he was talking about what is it like to be a bat? Which I think I thought of all the people I know this will resonate with Greg. Oh I, I think I was a bat at some point if I would subscribe to that because it's wonderful. Exactly. You're obsessed with bats in a good way. It's your favorite animal or whatever. I think so, um, maybe. Yeah. Mine is the badger, and we won't get into that. <laughs> so, I've only had good experiences with badgers. Really? Yes, including oh. Paul the badger, yeah. Yes, great. I was in my badger voice. There we go. Brief badger moment. But Nagel's thing was the he went through this whole exercise to say, how could we understand what it's like to be a bat? So how could Greg or Paul or whomever understand what it's like to be a bat? And his conclusion was, we can't. The yeah. only way you could understand what it's like to be a bat is to be the bat. And I thought, wow, okay, that's cool. That makes perfect sense. It makes sense even amongst humans. The only way I could possibly understand what it's like to be Greg Bishop is if I was Greg Bishop. And I don't and I even could... know what it's like. Exactly. But I can never be Greg Bishop. So... You can never understand me. I can never understand you. Frankly, I don't even know if we can understand ourselves. The best we can do is try and maybe sort of hope that we can it's get a bit of that yeah, understanding. Grunt a lot and see if we can uh, somehow, uh, what's the word, uh, extrapolate or infer from all the gruntings what, I, what is actually going on in somebody's brain. Yes, like the badger. Yeah. So, so but Nagel's work, which I came across when I was writing the book about the bat, it, to me, it's fascinating, and it perfectly you know, drove home the idea that, okay, if you do kind of believe in reincarnation, then let's just leave animals out of it, and let's just stick with people. Well, maybe the way that you can understand who Greg Bishop is, is you come back as Greg Bishop, or if not Greg Bishop, you come back as somebody in his situation, and you live a life that is similar to his. Now, you and I are in the same general socioeconomic class, so it's probably a bad example. Yeah. How can I understand how a poor farmer in the middle of the Sudan, uh, what his life is like. Well, I can't. So maybe yeah. if I'm reincarnated, I come back as a poor farmer in the Sudan. Then I come back as a Buddhist monk. Then I come back as a, an Aboriginal in the Australian outback. And maybe then I come back as Mitt Romney and go to the planet Koloth or wherever he winds up. <laughs> uh, sorry, that's a brief Bill Maher moment where he makes fun of Bill uh, or Mitt Romney and the Mormons. But, you know, we, we understand that maybe that's what we do. We keep coming back 
and th this is what I speculate about in the book, in the reincarnation chapter, we keep coming back and have all these different experiences until we've had as many as we think we can, or as we, we're like honeybees. We take those experiences back to the hive, which I believe is this collective consciousness, or I think, I should say, I think could be this collective consciousness that eventually we all merge into. Not like the Borg, which people see as a bad thing, but this understanding that we're really all parts of a greater whole. And if you believe in reincarnation, I think we keep coming back to gain experiences that would enhance the greater whole, that make us, as parts of the whole, um, better. And so eventually we join the whole. Maybe we don't join it on the first go-round because we're not ready. Somebody like Walter, for instance, wouldn't be ready because Walter... <laughs> I mean that in the best possible way, but he is a dyed-in-the-wool individualist. When he would be confronted with the, if there is this cosmic consciousness that we're all a part of, he would go, oh my God, it's a communist plot. I'm going back. And eventually, maybe you have enough go-rounds on this planet where when you get there and they reveal it, they go, okay, you know what? Now I get it. Fine. I understand. Yeah. And you can have both because they're aspects of the same thing. Right. It's, you know, it's the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? We're all the kingdom of heaven. And we're all part of it. And so I don't believe... And this has never made sense to me. And I think this is one of the reasons why people turn off mainstream religion, at least Christian religion, because it's been presented to them this way. That when you die, you go to heaven. All right, I'm with you so far. When you get to heaven, you're going to see your mom and your dad and, and Frank and Joe, and you're all going to be exactly like you are here. It's just you're, you're it's like you're taking a trip where you stop breathing and you show up in Australia and or wherever heaven is and go, oh, okay, here I am. And there's Frank and Joe and mom and dad and whatever. Mm -hmm. And see, I think that's crazy. Uh, that is so counterintuitive to everything that I think if you just open your mind up, even if you read, you know, the Bible, frankly, but any sort of great religious tracts, that's not in there. What's in there is you go to a completely different realm where everyone is equal. So, you know, I'd like to say Jesus is the ultimate communist. Um, God is the ultimate communist. Everyone's equal. The fact that you were Mitt Romney or, or Warren Buffett, you had billions of dollars in this world, and the fact that that guy was a poor ditch digger, none of that's relevant anymore because that's not who you are. Who you are is something completely different. Yeah. And and you're all equal, truly equal, not the kind of equality that they talk about in the United States, which isn't real equality, or in Canada, for that matter. I don't want to pick on the U.S. That's not real equality true equality, where everyone truly is equal. And that, I think, is what the kingdom of heaven is. That is what I think is at the essence of all spiritual traditions. That is, I think, what we have corrupted and through 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 years of human history. And by we, I mean, you know, humans. Yeah. And so coming back to the beginning, if there is this advanced non-human intelligence, I think it gets that. I think it might be that. It probably is that. And I think the message it's trying to give to us is trying to and subtly remind us to lead us to a better place, which is this, and I'm going to use this term, kingdom of heaven. I don't use it in the term that your sort of mainstream evangelical Protestant Christians would in the U.S. I use it in what I think is its real, you know, take, I'll just use Jesus as an example, what he meant by it, which is this consciousness beyond this world, beyond the individual, frankly. And so I think that's what the advanced non-human intelligence may very well be. And it's trying to um, to present itself, to manifest itself, to show us, to lead us to a greater understanding of that. And, you know, it might take several lifetimes to get there. It might take a lot of lifetimes to get there. We might never get there. I don't know. Maybe it's a continual process. 
but I think that's part of I think that's what the paranormal is ultimately and uh, and I think that's what the human condition is too and again if I'm wrong about all of that I'm completely wrong out the lunch now that's true well you know what it's still a good message because as I write in the book <laughs> I actually say if all of this sounds I think this is an exact quote if all of this sounds new agey to some people who are reading this um, and certainly to some people who maybe have heard me before well Ask yourself this question. What's wrong with new agey if you look at the old age? If you look at the status quo, if you look at where we are, if, and I have a chapter at the end called The Other Side of Truth where I talk about the world as it's been and as it exists now. Uh, you know, I talk about Nazis and I talk, well, I talk about a whole bunch of things. And I say, football, we're a horrible, horrible, horrible race. We have a horrible history behind us. And yes, we can point out individual examples of having done great things, of people who've transcended the horribleness, Gandhi or Dag Hammarskjöld. Those are not the people that are taught in schools. Those yeah. are not the things that most people, you know, we're too busy watching football, which is basically, basically gladiator, you know, ramped up and sent into the modern era and televised to hundreds of millions of people. Yeah. And I, you know, I, in the last show I talked about mixed martial arts, so on and on and on. <laughs> that's what we glorify in our society, but that's what we've glorified for all of human history. Mozart, Hammer, Dag Hammarskjöld, those people are the exceptions that prove the rule in different ways. I mean, Mozart was crazy, but the great music that he brought forth. <laughs> yeah, well, that, he, there's a lot of crazy artists. There's a lot of... Uh, I might be one of them. Yes, people, I but, think you are. I, but do you if, think people would... Did you finish your thought yet? I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, getting back to the New Age thing. So... If you are a new ager, I think that's a good thing because, frankly, the old age isn't working. And whatever the new age you want to look at, the end destination should be creating a better world for all of us. And then whatever is out there beyond that will take care of itself when we get there. We can't change that. Maybe we can open ourselves up to get a better understanding of it. But we're here. And if, and if at least thinking about a better world and a, and a, a more collective consciousness gets us thinking about creating a, a better society for ourselves here, well, then I think that's a good thing. So if nothing else, even if I'm completely wrong about what happens after we die or what UFOs are or anything like that, the core message that we can make a better world for ourselves here, well, that's one that, that's a slam dunk for me. So I'm right about that, even if I'm wrong about everything else. Okay. I was going to talk about uh, models and things, but... Uh... You know what? On my uh, on my phone here, on my uh, iTunes, your name is uh, a couple of your podcasts are on my phone, but your name is right after Pat Pat Oswalt. Is that a uh, synchronicity of some sort? Yes, it is. Because when you were know. saying that, I was thinking of this thing that he did about uh, belief systems. What if I? What if I? One thousand percent believed, and I believe this a thousand. What if I believed that there was a giant invisible anus hovering over me, and if I wasn't nice and helpful and courteous and charitable to everyone I met, the anus would appear, suck me up into it, and I would be devoured by shit piranhas. And I mean, and I believe this a thousand percent. I would be the nicest guy you ever met. You're like. Pat, you're so helpful and charitable and, and courteous to people. Why is that? And I'll go, it's funny you should ask me that. You can't see it, but there's an invisible anus hovering over me. And if I'm not nice to everybody, it will appear and suck me up and I'll be eating. Well, I don't need to tell you about the shit piranhas. We all know about those, right? 
Your correct response would be, I acknowledge you believe that. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Please do not stop believing in the dumbest thing I've ever heard because you're actually helping people out with your craziness. Don't stop believing in that stuff, please. I beg you. Well, I thought you'd like that, baby. Typical Pat and Oswalt starts out really well and kind of peters out towards the end. But yeah, no, that's funny, <laughs> especially the, the piranhas. Yes. But, you know, what he's talking about there is punishment. So that if you don't behave, you will be eaten by the shit piranhas. Yes. Well, okay, I, I don't believe there are any shit piranhas. Well, I don't know what I, I, yeah, There's a greater message there about whatever the belief system is, as long as it has you treat pe other people nicely. Yeah. It, it's probably okay. Now, maybe if you're smart or something happens, you can get past that and treat other people okay because it's the right thing to do, not because you think you're going to get eaten by shit piranhas. Maybe, although I think, um, well, you know, you'd like to think so, but... Yeah, well, uh, a lot of people operate on the carrot and stick thing, which is why, you know, you're kind of scared to bring in the kingdom of heaven thing because it implies a hell and, a, you know, a, a punishment for badness and a reward for goodness or whatever, which seems sort of es well, if exoteric rather than esoteric. If nothing else, the punishment would be you'd have to come back. You know, it's kind of like school. You didn't pass, so we're going to make you do grade four again. Yeah. So not to be trite, but if you're Hitler... Um, you didn't pass, you know, so you got to go back and do it again. And by the way, here's what we're going, you know, you're going to go back and here's what you're going back as. And so we're going to send you back as a Jewish merchant in, you know, maybe with time travel in, in czarist Russia in 1902 Yes, and enjoy the pogroms, you know, or whatever. So there might be not an element of punishment there, but just an element of, of understanding. And frankly, you know what? It reminds me of Q in Star Trek. They have this episode where in Voyager, they visit the Q continuum and Q's trying to get, one of the Q is trying to commit suicide because he's, which is the other Q are like, a, they can't even comprehend this because they're immortal. And he says, I want my existence to end because I have been everything. I've been the chair. I've been the dog, you know, and they, they present it as sort of this deserted kind of, tableau in in southern california where you've got a beaten up old gas station and it's like something out of bad day at black rock <laughs> spencer tracy shows up and gets it's that town yeah. says i've been the dog i've been the chair i've been the fence post i've been the scarecrow and and q john delancey's q goes oh everybody's been the scarecrow <laughs> and but trying to make yeah. trying to so that janeway and the star trek crew can visualize what it must be like to be in the q continuum and so if you look at it that way if there really are, if if you do believe in reincarnation, if there really, if we do get all these go rounds, then at some point or another, we all get to be Hitler, or if not Hitler, Heydrich or Himmler or some Nazi that kills a lot of people, or we could be Stalin. You know, you don't have to be a Nazi. There's plenty of evil in this world, or you could no. be a serial killer. We would all do those things. In fact, I talk in the book, um, one of the leading into the reincarnation chapter about a case that I ran into when I was doing my grad work. Um, going back to Henry Allen and his New Light movement after he died, uh, there was this group that came out, sort of the really radical fringe of, of his New Light movement called the New Dispensationalists. They rejected everything. They rejected church order. They rejected everything. They said, hey, we're in direct communication with God. We can do whatever we want. And that's sort of what Allen was saying, but he combined it with a personal asceticism. So it, it kept it not in a box, but at least 
you know, it kept it from spinning wildly out of control. Mm -hmm. These these people you know, reject marriage. We can sleep around. We can do whatever. Blah blah blah. Fine. Eventually, that kind of stuff always burns itself out. But there was this case in 1805, a poor farmer fisherman in New Brunswick named Amos Babcock, who had an episode, there's no other way to put it, where he literally went off his rocker and he wound up murdering his sister. Oh, yes, this his... is in the book. Yeah. And uh, and he claimed to be, he was having visions. They were all having visions. It was this thing amongst his family. And it's really... I remember reading this when I was younger as a grad student. It's a really crazy story, but it resonated with me in a, for a couple of ways that I talk about in the book. Babcock was eventually, he, they came over, they arrested him, his neighbors arrested him, dragged him through tw 30 miles in a snowstorm um, by sled to the nearest town where he was eventually, he was eventually tried and, and executed for murder. They hanged him back in the days in Canada where we actually still executed people. Um, but I look at this story, and so I, when I was a kid, I had these, um, and it's a very tangential link, but I had these, uh, you know, sort of waking episodes where I would be lying on the couch reading a book or something, and then I would suddenly feel as if I was literally falling, like, you know, I'd been standing, and then boom, something had gone out from under me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I put the spin on it, which, without saying that this is what I believe happened, but just putting the spin on it, that maybe that was an echo as a young person of a past life. And maybe that past life, if not Amos Babcock being hanged, was somebody who had been hanged. And there's an episode from Ghost Cases where I get in trouble by putting a noose around my neck in the cell of a man who was also hanged in New Brunswick in 1943, I think it was, for killing a woman again. It was an RAF sergeant during the war. So I seem to hang out a lot or read a lot about these people who kill women in New Brunswick and then get hanged for it. And they all <laughs> seem to resonate with me. And so I start to think, well, okay, if you buy this thing where we've all been Hitler, or if we've all been somebody who's been evil and bad and killed people, well, that's part of the human experience, too. So maybe I've already done that. I don't know, but maybe that's why it resonates with me. Uh, and I also talk about these dreams I used to have when I was a young teenager, very vivid dreams, where I, I would literally wake up and I actually thought I'd killed somebody because I would have these dreams where I would kill somebody. I was always... A, don't start psychoanalyzing me, people, because I was very young. We all have dreams. But it was always a woman. It was always the same dream. It was always in a frontier setting, too, which is why the Babcock story maybe resonated with me. It was always kind of like in the 19th century on the frontier mm -hmm. and uh, log cabin, all that sort of stuff. And this person, whoever it was, was close to me. It was not somebody that was unknown. It was somebody I did know. So anyway, I would wake up for, you know, I'd be like, oh, my God, like <laughs> kind of breathing and, and looking around thinking, am I in jail if I kill someone? And, you know, but this was a repeating dream. It wasn't a dream that I just had once. So, again, is that an echo of a past life or is that some sort of connection? I have no idea. But, you know, I draw these, I throw all of this stuff out in the chapter in Reincarnation, which folks might be now kind of gleaning is perhaps the chapter I find the most interesting. And or at least the experiences that I find the most interesting. And it takes me back to that Amos Babcock thing, but also that idea that we're all Hitler, um, that if we do believe that we live all of these lives, if you want the full range of human experience, you're Mitt Romney, you're Hitler, you're the rich guy, you're the poor guy, you're the mass murderer, you're the saint. You have to do all of that. And only then can you truly understand what it's like to be a bat or in this case, what it's like to be human, all the facets of humanity. Uh, so I don't know where I am on that sort of sliding scale. I don't even know what this life represents. Sort of the goofy television producer, maybe. But, um, you know, I don't know how many more I'd have to go or how many I've done. I think you only really realize that when it's all over. Yeah. Or, you know, my my idea about it is uh, 
the reincarnation thing is too mechanistic to me. It sounds like a a factory uh, idea of what might be going on. I, I don't know what is going on, but it seems it. I don't reject that idea, but it seems too simple to me that. Okay, you try it this way. Now you try it this way. Now you try it this way. To to my idea that is some people have more access to that collective consciousness, whatever you want to call it, than others do. And they resonate with certain experiences or something in that which we see as repeating lives. I don't know. That's that's my but it's the same result, you see. Uh you're 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 clearly wrong. <laughs> right. Exactly. I'm never coming I'm never coming on this crazy show again with you and your crazy ideas. How dare you? No. Okay, Mr. New Agey Paul, now not accepting other people. <laughs> I prefer the term Badger Paul. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what I'm gonna be known as from now on. Badger Paul. Hey, it's you know, it's that's the great thing about ideas, and that's one of the things that I think is sorely missing in our society today, is people just stepping away from the day to day grind and talking about ideas, talking about possibilities. That's the sort of reductionism that I now, I completely reject. I always rejected it, but now I completely and publicly reject it about the paranormal. You know, that idea that we should get into these arguments amongst people about, um, was Roswell a crass? I don't care. I don't care what Roswell was. I don't care about that Bigfoot sighting. I mean, those are all... Is is not what's important. It's how it affects us and what might be coming later that's more important, which is what the book's about, actually. Right. It doesn't matter if there's a God. What matters is that we consider the possibility that there's a God. You can reject it, you can accept it, or you can sit on the fence like I do and keep thinking about it. But, you know, you should at least think about these things. and, And otherwise, you just go through life and... I mean, you know, you get up in the morning, you go to work, you cash your paycheck, you visit Vegas a couple times, you have a few kids, a white picket fence, and then, or whatever, and then it's over. And, you know, you're like the W.H. Auden poem um, about literally listing the title, which always escapes me, but you know the one, where I did this, I did the Bureau of Statistics, said this, blah, 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 and at the end, you know, what what am I? I'm just a number, right? Yeah. Um, And... I think we should all aspire to be something more than numbers, but we have to actually think and we have to be willing to have somebody say, no, you're flat out wrong. Okay. I may well be. What's your idea? Oh, okay. Actually, I think I, yeah, that makes more sense to me than my own idea. Okay. Well, let's talk about it over a few, over a few beers. Yeah. Or, or, or or one beer like I'm drinking or you're possibly wrong. And somebody at a strip club, huh? A few beers at a strip club yeah. talking about metaphysics. Yeah. I can't think of anything more interesting than that. Quite civilized. I, yes. I, somebody, I think on one of the forums at the show, brought it up that I think it was an Eleanor Roosevelt quote is like boring or stupid people talk about how much stuff costs. People that are a little less boorish than that talk about other people. And people that are really interesting that I want to hang out with talk about ideas. True enough. And my quick rejoinder to that would be it's very easy for Eleanor Roosevelt to say, don't worry about how much things cost because she didn't have to worry about how much things cost. <laughs> so there, there is something to be said for people, you know, like the idea that, well, of course I can talk, which is why it makes people like Mitt Romney, not to pick on more poor Mitt, so sad because you actually have the money and the wherewithal to talk about really big ideas. You don't have to work for a living ever again. You could spend the entire rest of your life sitting on top of a mountain contemplating existence, as opposed to trying to get a bigger tax cut for your fellow fat cats. 
Uh, why? If I had your kind of money, the last thing I'd be doing is running for president, trying to tell everybody else what they should be doing. Yeah, you, you never know? hear from me again, except in the in the uh, as an organizer of bringing people together. I always wanted to get in a room with me and talk. Bingo! Exactly. It's like, wow, I can actually invite um, the Dalai Lama. He'll probably come. Uh, I can probably get um, Keith Richards. That'd be cool. Dalai Lama and Keith Richards in the same room. Interesting. You know, go down the list. And find all these interesting people that you'd you'd want to talk to and hang yeah, out with. Get 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 them and Dean Radin and Richard Branson yeah. in a room together or something. I'm pretty sure the Under Secretary of Defense for Weapons Procurement would not be the person that I would want to be spending any time with. Right. So, but Mitt Romney does, and you know Barack Obama does too. And and there's other reasons why they want to do it. That's fine. But you know all of that stuff is transitory. At the end of the day. We're all going to wind up in the same place, wherever that place is. In the end of the day, say a thousand years from now, which is a drop in the universal bucket of time, nobody is going to remember who Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan, Joe Biden, and Barack Obama are. Um, if they do, it'll be because they've blown up the world or done something truly horrendous. But we can look back. I mean, look back a thousand, just a thousand years. I'm not even going to go all the way back to Rome. Look back yeah. to the Middle Ages. Yeah. Name three kings of Europe, any country, any principality, doesn't matter, England, France, the Holy Roman Empire, don't care which one, but go to the year 1002 and tell me who three of the leaders of Europe were. Any three. I can't do it. You, I can't. I'm betting 99.9, I'm betting .9, unless you're an ancient historian, yeah. can't. And even if you couldn't name them, well, okay, tell me what they did and all that sort of stuff. Only the most obscure of historians will remember the names of those four people, which then kind of really puts it in perspective because I'm exactly the same as Barack Obama because they're not going to remember my name either. So why do we all work so hard to have it like, you know, why do we need to leave a legacy? Presidents always talk about leaving a legacy. Oh, I'm worried about my legacy. Why? You're not going to be here to enjoy it. You're not going to know what people are saying about you. And in a thousand years, Unless you happen to be Alexander or Caesar or one of those truly rare figures that maybe seep into the timeless human consciousness, or at least timeless in a 2,000-year period. Who knows? In 10,000 years, I'm willing to bet nobody's going to remember Alexander the Great and Caesar either because the planet will be run by monkeys, Yes, judging by the films, which are clearly a vision of the future. So why do we get all worked up about leaving our mark or leaving our legacy? We should just get worked up about living a good life, which is very new agey. But the old age is all about legacies and leaving our mark and telling people <laughs> what to do. Hasn't worked out so well. So, yeah, I'm firmly on the path of the new age, you know, which is, by the way, the same path that the Beats, which is the group of people I identify most with, you know, Kerouac, Bukowski, um, the 60s, the poets, but also the musicians. That's the sort of era that I feel most at home in, intellectually. And so, but that's what they were all about. Just throwing ideas out there, living life, experiencing. And it sounds like a cliche, but understanding this is the subtext of the book. It's the title of the introduction. The journey really is the destination. So we need to stop worrying about the destination, even within the paranormal. The destination being, here's the hard and fast answer. No. Yes. It's the journey. Here's what we can hold up and say, I told you so. Right. I don't want to tell anyone I told you so. I just want to say, hey, here's my ideas. Here's your ideas. It's all one big journey. And none of us are probably ever going to know what the answer is um, until, you know, we hit that sort of we go beyond the gray wall that is death. And then we'll get the answer. 
And if, you know, or, the answer might... or there will be nothing. But I'm I, I'm with you, True. and I'm willing to uh, to bet that there's a fairly good chance that there's something that survives death, whether it's a ghost or uh, a consciousness or something. I do not know. But yeah, well, and, all, you know, all the information we have from people that have been about halfway there or so, it seemed to indicate, and also you know things like research into reincarnation where they find people who are not and it's been over and over again where you can find children who recall details of lives of people they there's no way they could have known right the work of dr ian stevenson um, yeah which i yeah. discuss in my book at some length right uh is you know sort of mind-blowing and even stevenson himself would say this is not absolute proof of reincarnation right but here's a and even carl sagan had to admit i can't explain it I'm not saying I believe it. Yeah. I'm just saying this guy has created an interesting body of work through rigorous research, yeah. and it indicates that there might be something here that maybe we don't understand. I just don't know what it is. Was he the guy so, that got some money from these uh, one of the founders of Xerox to do some of his research? Could be. I, I, I honestly don't know. I think that's who you're I, that, he was. He's been written up quite a bit in the uh, SSE journal, so that's how I knew his name. Probably as he's he's dead now. He's yeah. Uh, yeah, but um, you can read his book. He actually was published in um, a number of peer-reviewed scientific journals, psychological psychology journals, and his peers, even if they disagreed with his conclusions about the nature of reincarnation or whatever, said, "Look, we can't ignore the body of work that he's created. Yeah, we might reach different conclusions, but it, you have to take him seriously, and you have to look at this, and you have to consider what this might mean, and you can't just close your mind to it and say, well, this doesn't fit.'" in with the worldview as I see it. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, that's, neither did meteorites or ball lightning or whatever. So No, and that's as unscientific as you can get. Um, so, yeah, Stevenson's work is very interesting. The, you know, I dropped that kind of stuff throughout the book. Thomas Nagel, a bit of philosophy here, a little bit of Stevenson there, yeah. some, religion, some Henry Allen in religion here. I mean, it's kind of, it's a potpourri of the paranormal. Uh, I guess is I the best way to change, describe. I think you better change the title for the next uh, edition. Potpourri of the Paranormal. <laughs> or just po Paranormal Potpourri. Actually, I'm just going to call it Badger. Yeah, that'd be a good one too. Bitchy Badger. Yeah, the Bitchy Badger and other stories from the, the esoteric world. Mind of Paul Kimball. Oh, I like that. That's actually, that could be the next book I do. Yeah, yeah. Bitchy Badger. The Bitchy Badger. <laughs> so, Paul... Where did the title The Bitchy Badger come from? Well, it was actually Greg Bishop, the late Greg Bishop that um, told me that. How did he die? Well, it was in a freak badger accident. Yeah. <laughs> shit piranhas ate him. He was yeah. vacationing. And turns out Patton Oswalt was right on the money with the shit yeah. piranhas. Uh, well, he just see, he did something mean to somebody and he suddenly disappeared into the sky. Yeah, exactly. He was sucked up by, you know, Kang and Kodos. Or, was it no, Kodos? the giant invisible anus. Well, yes, being flown by Kang and Kodos. Oh, okay, yes, Simpson. exactly. I'm, I'm really pulling in my pop culture here with Kang yeah, and Kodos. So. that's uh, Simpson, and, right? And Cthulhu from South Park. Yes. Yeah, Cthulhu is not from, uh, it has nothing to do with H.P. Uh, Lovecraft or any of his writings. It's a South Park thing. It's, it's just a South Park thing. There's an entire generation of kids that go, Cthulhu, yeah, it's a, it's a cool little monster from South Park, right? Yes. Um, yeah, sure it is. Whatever. Keep thinking that. That's exactly what Cthulhu wants you to think. So I, now that I've drank one beer and talked to you uh, for about two hours, I need to go to work. How do, how do uh, people pick up the, this, your, your new book, The Other Side of Truth? Um, well, we're doing a slow rollout. Eventually it'll be available in ebook uh, sometime in early 2013. But I hate ebooks. I really do, personally. So my belief is that every book my company publishes 
uh, will have a hard copy print run first. It might only be for a week or two. But like films, you should have a cinematic run before you wind up on DVD. Yes. So sometime in early 2013, I have British partners who are going to help me out who are experts in the ebook world. So you'll be able to pick it up on ebook. Until then, it's available in hard copy on Amazon, uh, Amazon.uk. And uh, you can go to my own company's website. W, well, Greg will post a link, but www.redstarfilmtv.com backslash books, which is where the Red Star Books imprint is, and you can order it from there, too. And keep up with news as it develops about Max's book or Nick's book or Aaron's book or whatever other books we choose to publish. All right. And, and you can read something that I've written recently, which that doesn't happen very often these days. That, oh, there's a plane. What is that? Sounds like yes, a that that is a. It sounds like a jetter or something coming over the house. Yeah, it's true. Greg was very kind in small print on the cover of the book. You'll see a forward written by Greg Bishop. Uh, and uh, what did you call it? The paranormal. I forget now. Off the top of my head. What is it? What was the title of your forward? Of my what? The, the forward. The Dadaist School of the Paranormal. Yeah, something it? like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, so it's you know it's quite clever and witty, and um, he doesn't really mention me at all. But that's cool. That's what forward should do. I mentioned you twice. I said. Yeah, I know. Well, that's doesn't <laughs> that's at all. I, I had to I, think about it. It's like I'm writing. I'm writing. Oh, I better mention something about the book and what's in it. I think. Why I'm he, Greg actually emailed me and said I'm really sorry I didn't mention you more in the forward. And I said no, it's fine. You know, frankly, forwards people ask people two reasons. One to boost your ego and say this is the greatest book ever. I love this guy. Yeah, that's not my thing. My thing is ask a guy who's going to write a forward that's related to the content of the book but provides a different perspective or enhances the content. And if that person doesn't really mention your name until the last sentence, well, Bob's your uncle, that's fine. So Greg's forward is just, it's kind of stands alone. It would stand alone as an essay on UFO Mystic or wherever Greg writes these days. Uh, I'm just lucky enough to have that's, it in my book. Well, I was lucky enough to have it, to have you ask because that's the only place I have writing anymore is in is in uh, introductions and forwards to things. It seems like. Oh well, that's a good place to be writing. Though. Yeah, I guess so. It's a lot easier. It doesn't make much money though. Uh, it doesn't make any money. You're not getting a piece of the back end on my book. <laughs> well, I didn't ask for one. I didn't expect one, and I hope the book does well, and I hope it helps. It helps it somehow with sales. I don't know, but anyway, I just had fun writing the. No, I'm I'm kidding. If the <laughs> If the book does well, then, you know, that provides, if all of these books do well, that provides more income for my company, and that allows me to do more books, and hopefully someday a Greg Bishop book, because it's been too that. long. I'm still, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm I've made starts on three or four different books, and I didn't like any of them. And one of them, my contact, who was going to be most of the information for the book, suddenly stopped talking to me for some mysterious reason, so. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's never... It's never mysterious why people stop talking to me. I probably pissed them off somehow. So. I know exactly yeah, well, I, why. Maybe I pissed them off. I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. Oh, Greg never pisses anyone off, unlike me. So anyway, yeah, thanks for having me on Radio Mysterioso, which I'm considering the official. I, I, I actually did an episode of the X-Zone um, the other day, but I consider this the official home of the other side of truth because it's the show I've been on the most, and it's the host I like the most, and it's where you're going to hear the, the most intelligent conversation uh, or at least, you know, there are other intelligent shows, but this is all. This well, place feels it's like home. Interesting to me. enough. Yes, thank you. I'm honored that uh, this is one of the few shows you'll actually appear on and talk about your book. If you, if you're lucky, and we hope you are, you get on um, 
uh, Coast to Coast for 30 minutes to talk about it. <laughs> uh, I, I've been on Coast to Coast before. I think they hate me for some reason. Um, I think they hate me, too, because they only had me on that one time, and then that was it. Yeah, I what was last. Oh, I well, did. Ghost I didn't put Coast. out anything else besides that. Besides Weird California, they didn't have me on for that. So, yeah, I, I mean, despite my so-called aversion to paranormal radio, uh, I will literally do any show because I also have a business. You know, I have a business to run, and part of putting a book out there is to promote it. And I stand behind the ideas in it, so I have no problem talking about um, the ideas in the book. I have no problem talking about anything if I actually have something to talk about. The aversion to paranormal radio came from or any radio, was I had just run out of things to talk about. I was saying the same stuff over and over again. So what's the point? But, you know, I think I had maybe something new to say or different. So, yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. Yes, you did. And uh, I think it's to find out more of this stuff, that side of the other side of Paul Kimball, you should pick up the book. Thanks, thanks, Paul. And uh, Thanks, Greg, for having me. All right. Well, well, we'll talk to you again soon. And I'll and cut remember- off the recording there. Oh, no, maybe I won't. Oh, I was going to say, remember, I don't I get to request a song, my playout yes. song? Yes. Uh, what am I going to request? Oh, it's always a tough one. What's a good song? Oh, I always go back to the same old. What? Ah, no, I know what I want to request. The Beatles, There's a Place. <laughs> Which actually at the end of another one of the shows. No, right no, you've never played that for me in the show. Usually I request that Western song, the, um, the gringo, gringo Like, like me. me. Yeah. Which is kind of my theme song. But yeah, There's a Place, which is actually... Now my official favorite Beatles song, having knocked Ticket to Ride out of the number one spot. And it also kind of relates to what The Other Side of Truth is all about. 